Welcome, fellow brave believers. This is Kingdom Cast. I'm your host, Sean Griffin, and this is the channel Kingdom in Context. We want to thank you for joining us tonight. And we have thanks for uh, sticking around, everyone. We have a little bit of a late start tonight. I was in an interview with the Brian Dialogues, and we're going to play that interview for you tonight. But before we do, we're going to take a couple of questions, and we're going to uh, just do some basic um, house maintenance, if you will. As always, guys, thanks for joining me on these podcasts. Don't forget, tomorrow night we have a um, part two of our serpent seed debate with uh, Zen Garcia. So make sure you join us for that. It'll be a lot of fun. Um, that's going to be the part where I actually present my rebuttals to his uh, his part one, where he presented his his case. You know, so come join us for that tomorrow night. As always, like, share, and subscribe to this video. And the reason I say should I share is because if um, if you're learning something and you want other people to know what you're learning, if you think it's beneficial to you and to them, make sure you share it. That's how we get around the suppression and the censorship of YouTube uh, because we're definitely not being um, promoted like uh, like a lot of other ministries doing this type of this type of content. So with that in mind, some people would suggest the reason we're not being promoted is because of some of the topics we're going to be discussing tonight in, uh, in the interview with our with Berean Dialogues. So It'll be a fun one. Stick around for it. I want to say hello to everyone in the chat. I've already got some people here already. The line within us. Thank you, brother, for being here. And what's Blaze Music? Thank you for being here, brother. Kingdom Truthers back. Welcome. Light of the Hill Ministries. Maz, Maxim Lavrov. Welcome back, brother. Uh, Blue Doves. Welcome back. Light of the Hill Ministries. Uh, I think I already said that. Um, we got quite a few people. Bring brings to light is here. Welcome, AC James Henry. Uh, welcome everybody. So tonight. We're going to be doing just a little bit different. Normally we will do, we'll present information or I'll present some sort of presentation on scripture and then we take questions. But tonight we're going to kind of do it in reverse order. Uh, we'll take some questions and then I'm going to, as soon as this is ready for me to play, <laughs> because it's, it's still uh, rendering and processing. As soon as it's ready for me to play uh, in full, I'll be able to bring that up. All right. I'll be able to bring that up so everyone can watch it. So um, let me try to get that. Get that ready real quick. Hopefully it'll be loud enough for everybody here as well. Okay. But ultimately, it's uh, it's going to be a great conversation that I had with uh, Russell from the, the Brian Dialogues. And we're going to be talking about the Torah and believers, you know, the different sides of the excuse me, different sides of the perspective, and how they, you know, some believe that it's applicable for their lives. Some believe just a couple of the Torah is. Some believe they're not. Um, but ultimately, we'll be talking about that as well as Jesus and his priesthood and how that applies. We'll also be talking about the new covenant. We'll also be talking about Galatians and Hebrews and Romans. So we we just dump in, we dig in. I think you guys are gonna really enjoy it. And uh, yes, brings to light that it's the same Berean Dialogues. I did an interview with them several months ago on biblical cosmology. And so, yes, the same the same outfit. He's a great guy. And uh, Jared Rice, welcome. NEG, welcome. Coffee Beans, welcome. Amber Bumpus, Great Deception's back. Welcome, everybody. Katrina Brown, welcome. All right, it's good to see everybody here tonight. So, as always, if you would... Go check out our Kingdom Cast channel. Go subscribe to that. If this is your first time seeing this podcast here in Kingdom in Context, please go over to our secondary backup channel. It's called Kingdom Cast. You can either put it in the YouTube search bar or you can go to our recommended channels here on Kingdom in Context and you can find Kingdom Cast. Subscribe to that if you would. Um, that helps us get up to a thousand subscribers so that we can actually do the broadcast live stream from that channel. YouTube have some weird rules. One of the rules is you can't live stream until you have a thousand 
thousand viewers on each channel. So uh, if you would go help me out with that, I really appreciate it. Also subscribe to New Jerusalem Media and Hanging on His Words. Those are other recommended channels that you'll see right there as well. So everyone, um, we appreciate you being here. And if you would, would you, I, like I said earlier, we're going to, we're going to play this interview. Sorry guys, I'm still like dealing with some, some broadcast stuff uh, with this software before I was, that's why I was kind of late jumping on the broad, the uh, podcast tonight, but I think it's all going to work out just fine. And if you would, uh, if you have any questions about scripture, I'll take, you know, three or four of those real quick. And then that way we get a chance for people to ask some actual questions live. Um, as always, truly appreciate you guys out there that many of you send your, your, you know, encouraging messages to us to tell you how you either been blessed by what we're doing, or you, you better understand something now, uh, because you've seen one of our videos or you've started watching for, you know, some time now that's just, you know, it's an answer to our prayers. Right. And so we really appreciate your encouraging words and support other, you guys, if you, you've been, uh, wanting to see us grow and get, you know, better at what we do and to reach more people. So you've been financially supporting us. Those links will be in the description of the video. We really appreciate you for, uh, helping us out with that when you, if God puts it on your heart, right. And we have, uh, both PayPal and Patreon options and even a PO box. If you want to send old school mail, it's up to you. So we just appreciate everybody. I want to say thank you to all of you who've done that in the past and are continuing to do that on a monthly basis. It really, really helps us do this as much as we get we get to. So, all right, guys, if y'all have any questions, throw them in the chat, put them in all caps. So turn your caps lock on on your keyboard, type out your question, then turn your caps lock off. And that's how I can see your question quickly and easily. And I know that you're actually talking to me. So if you have any questions, you're welcome to drop them in. Bobby Mo, you are late, but it's okay. I was late tonight too. So we're all late together. It's no big deal, man. Welcome. Jimmy Owen Kenobi's here. Welcome, brother. Um, sometimes that sometimes, man, it just depends. Here's the good thing is that, you know, we, there's, there's people in all areas of their walk with Christ, right? Some are at the very entry level, you know what I mean? Their surface level. Um, some are really deep, you know what I mean? And, so, you know, I know sometimes it can be frustrating getting stuck in the semantics of, of bad wording, you know, where you're both talking about the same thing, but you're just kind of caught up in the bad wording of it. And uh, you're trying to find, you know, common, you, you already have common ground with the person you're talking to. You just, they don't realize it because they're stuck in the bad wording, you know, of some, some rhetoric from bad teachings. So, you know, just uh, keep up, keep up the good work, man. Just be encouraged. You'll, uh, you're planting seeds. This is what we talk about. Mark 414, the sower sows the word. So just keep doing that. Bobby Mo, uh, how does Patreon work? He's asking. Patreon basically is it's like a, a monthly option. Like if you want to support us, instead of doing like a one-time gift through Super Chat or through PayPal, um, it's just people can set up like a, a quick monthly option, whether it's a dollar a month or $5 a month or $50 a month or $100 a month, whatever you feel that you want to bless us because you feel like you're getting something out of this. It's blessing you. It's benefiting you. Um that's, that's just a, it's an option for people to establish a monthly uh, contribution to us. So our pay, PayPal and Patreon links usually are in the video descriptions up below the videos. Uh, Jared Rice is asking, are there any good flat earth apologetic videos on your channel? Yeah, brother. I've got an entire playlist. It's called hashtag the creation. So let me take you asking, are there any good to that real quick. So let me see here. I'll take you to the playlist, at least show you what that looks like. All right, so here's my channel. And then if you go to playlists, 
it's right here. Second row, fourth on the right, the creation. So I've got, I don't know, five or six videos in there. And um, I go over some some good stuff. Uh, we also have um, a milk and meat episode that you might really be interested in. I think I'll drop this one in the chat. And this one is, no, no, it wasn't milk and meat. It was one of my podcasts. I don't know if you were here when I did this podcast a few weeks ago, but um, I'll drop this one in the chat for you. And it was when I did Dorothy and the Death Star. So what do the churches teach that leads to atheism? So I'll, I'll share this and drop it in the chat for you. That when we go over the creation model. Um, so it's may, it may benefit you, maybe a blessing to you. All right, let's see here. Um, NEG is asking, would you be interested in mediating a debate between me and Shamanian? Shamanian. I don't even know if I'm saying that right, man. Shamanian channel, if he accepts Skype. Um, I would be interested. I would not be available. I really apologize, brother or sister. I'm not sure if any NEG is, is a brother or sister, but I apologize. I'm not available for that kind of thing. Um, because I'm so busy doing my channel and, and doing stuff like that. I'm not in the position to mediate for other people. Um, so I apologize, man, at least not at this time, maybe in the future, but right now I'm working literally uh, three jobs that I'm trying to balance out. So um, this being one of them. So I've just, I apologize, man, but thanks for thinking of me. Sydney Hoglin is asking, have you done any videos on Ezekiel 38? <laughs> okay, sister. Uh, I don't think I've done any specific videos on Ezekiel 38. But um, that we should put that on the list for maybe a podcast or a milk and meat in the future, or maybe even a morning cup of context. But I don't know what you're asking about Ezekiel 38. That's a big chapter, and it actually blends into Ezekiel 39. So I'm not sure specifically what questions you may have. That's a huge chapter. Uh, specifically, if you just want to know Gog and Magog, that's, in my opinion, that's a territory, but it's also used as a moniker for the beast or for the, for, you know, the, that Nimrod, who, who attached many names that were worshipped as these false gods were attributed worship to the main patron deity of those pantheon of gods. And so Gog and Magog is just another name for, you know, uh, the, the, you know, Satan, but not Satan, but um, Nimrod, who also would be like uh, Baal or uh, Molech or uh, Osiris or, you know, they're just they kind of blend them together depending on which culture you're in. So. Uh, let me see here. Rob Dawson is asking Genesis nine, three. Am I missing some context here? I don't know your question, brother. I, I don't know if you, did you try to type in your question above? Yeah, I don't see, I don't see your question above, man. I, if you're, what's your question about Genesis nine, three. So help me out. All right. Okay. Um, <laughs> AC is asking, where's that cool beanie? It's here. But, but tonight it didn't exactly go with my Galatians shirt because my Galatians shirt goes with the podcast uh, tonight, which is this interview with the Brilliant Dialogues that you're about to see. So um, the, the, the beanie is safe. It's, uh, it's here, but it's not uh, technically it's not appropriate for the for the podcast tonight. Rob Dawson, uh, Rob Dawson is asking how to answer my friend about eating clean. Um, okay, let's go check out uh, let's go check out Genesis nine three real quick and see if there's something about that maybe 
just try to put a full question in there, brother, so I can better know how to answer you. Otherwise, I usually skip over these, but let's see if I can get you. I mean, ultimately, the, the instructions are eternal. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it, man. Some son of animals are not made for food. Some are made for food. And uh, we, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 lists off which ones are which, right? So it helps us. And those instructions were absolutely expressed to Adam as well. And were passed down through other patriarchs. This is why Noah, you know, he knew which, which ones to use for the sacrifice here in Genesis 8 and 9, which ones would be seven pairs of clean, two pairs of unclean to bring on the boat in the flood form. So let's look at uh, Genesis 9, 3 real quick here where it says, um, okay, yeah, so this is, this is basically this is a unique a unique one because you have to go into the Greek, and I actually used to have. Let me see if I can find this real quick. I used to have a. Let's not put this here for now. I used to have a picture that I made to show people the Greek in the Septuagint for Genesis one twenty nine and thirty, um, because that. All right. Let's see if you can see that. You guys can see that. See if I can make it bigger. Okay. Yes, and see that. Okay. So basically, brother, this Genesis 9:3 is just repeating what Adam was told in Genesis 1, 29 and 30. And if you look in the actual Greek, because remember, as we've tried to express a whole bunch here at Kingdom in Context, this is, yeah, I think this is it. That the um the Masoretic is the most is what we get most of our like KGV translations and all the modern translations. And that was a text that was developed by uh, rabbinical Jews in the ninth century AD. But a thousand years before that was the Septuagint translation, which is the Greek. And that was developed in the second century BC. And this was a very, you know, unique translation because it was directly from the old school Hebrew to the Greek of their day. And the rabbinical Jews of the days of Jesus and beyond, they did not like the Septuagint because they wanted to insert their own their own little slants and leanings. So um, I'm actually going to be talking about some of this stuff in greater detail in some of my rebuttals tomorrow night in with Zen. So be sure to join us tomorrow night as well. But if you just break down the literal Greek in Genesis 1 and take out the insertions from the translators in the English, you can clearly see that Adam is being told in addition to all the green herbs and the fruit bearing trees and everything that he also can eat all the wild beasts and the earth and all the wild winged animals. So this is him. There's not, there's not a differentiation of you can eat the plants and then God speaking differently to the animals. So that's what it looks like in the English in Genesis 1, 29 and 30, but that's not what it is in the original Greek. So this is where the original Greek, it's basically just God telling Adam, you can eat the, you know, the trees that bear fruit and, and the plants and the green herbs and winged animals and the wild beasts, right? So everything that would fall, as far as the living animals that would fall under the um, the guidelines of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, um, that's that's what Adam was told he could eat clean as well. Okay, so this is uh, just the same instructions. It's really simple, guys. It's the same instructions from start to finish. We've just had a lot of injection of translator bias that we have to kind of weed through but thankfully we have the you know the old school manuscripts to go back to in our modern day of scholarship that are available to us online and we can go back and we can actually look and see it just takes a little effort a little homework a little digging and that's that's what i do that's why i'm the word nerd you guys don't have to do that if you don't want to but if you want to it's available to you, you just got to go search it out so, so yeah point is 
we're all, you know, it would benefit your body to eat clean. Um, I would suggest that he eat clean, but if he's not trying to follow God and be in covenant with God, then there's no command for him to eat clean. Right. I mean, he can eat whatever he wants because he's rejecting the ways of the father anyway. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You would encourage him to eat clean if, if he knew what's good for him. But, you know, I mean, it's definitely <clears throat> it's wisdom to eat clean. It's wisdom not to eat bats, not to eat mice, not to eat pigs. But, you know, it's uh, it's one of those deals where he may not feel like he wants to abide by those instructions because he doesn't respect the creator. But if he does respect the creator, then I would 100 percent tell him to take seriously um, what Noah followed, which was he knew the difference between clean and unclean animals. All right, guys, let me see if I can. So we've been going about 20 minutes here. I'll just answer one or two more questions and then we'll start our interview real quick. Uh, Light of the Hill Ministries is asking question. There are some who object to Tobit as scripture because uh, <laughs> it's funny the the Gath Plessar the third who led Naphtali to captivity, but Tobit wrongly says that it was Salmanazar. Uh, what say you? Well, I have to see. I don't have time to research the verse right now. I think you're speaking about Second Kings 15 uh, with with him who there's multiple invasions of the northern house. And Tobit is um, I, I don't know what time period Tobit's speaking of. I'll have to go look back because it's been a while since I've reviewed uh, the first few chapters of Tobit. So I'll have to go back and look at a different time and see if there's a mistake or if it lines up or also keep in mind, uh, we might want to look into the Septuagint about that claim and see if it lines up with Tobit because Tobit would be translated uh, from the Greek. So sometimes the names change a little bit. Okay, brother. I would say maybe try that first, try and look at the Septuagint in second Kings 15, and that might clear it up for you quickly. Uh, oh, James 21, 22. Thank you, brother. Uh, Sirach 636. If you see a man of understanding, get you early unto him and let your foot wear the steps of his door. Thankful for you and Lindsay and your ministry. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a blessing. Okay, guys. Um, let me see here. Nope. NEG, the Hebrew translation of Genesis is younger than the Septuagint translation of Genesis. The Septuagint translation of Genesis is older than the Hebrew translation by a thousand years. Does that make any sense, Brady? So uh, just definitely do do your research on the Septuagint and uh, where it came about, and then do your research on the Masoretic text, which is where we get a lot of our modern English translations. So, okay. Um, yeah, you're welcome, Rob Dawson. Hopefully, it helps a little bit, brother. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to screen share over here real quick and. See if we can get this started. I need, I'm going to need some feedback from everybody in the chat to tell me if, um, if, if the sound is good on this. I'm going to have the sound up as like as much as I can, but I'm going to need some feedback. And I'm going to try to. I might skip to the beginning here. One second. Three, two. Interviewed by. Let me start over and do it again. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is raw and uncut, guys. All right, everyone. Tonight I'm going to be interviewed by Russell LaFleur of Berean Dialogues. Do you want me to say your name or just say the Berean Dialogues? No, you can tell them my name. It's fine. Okay. Um, Russ or Russell? Oh, Russell or Russ. Whatever, man. It, Russell LaFleur. Okay. Yeah. 
All right, everyone. Tonight I'm going to be interviewed by Russell Lafleur of Berea, and then have been I'm studying gonna skip the ahead a little bit. And over time, second, I realized I felt a fun conversation. Yeah, last time we had you on to discuss um, biblical cosmology. Today we're going to be talking about the Torah. Um, but for those who may have not have uh, caught you the first time you were on my show, if you wouldn't mind just uh, explaining a little bit about your ministry and a little bit about who you are. Sure. Well, I'm Sean. I'm I'm a 40-year-old believer in Jesus of Nazareth, right? I'm a Christian, a disciple of Christ. I was uh, I became a, a Christian in 1997 and studying his word ever since. Um, I grew up in a Christian household. My father was a pastor for some time, and then he became um, the, the leader of an org. Like he uh, founded a, a organization called the Cure Foundation, where he has orphanages in different countries, and that merged into something else called the David Livingston Cure Foundation. To where now they have lots of orphanages, and he's been doing that work for a long time. And so, um, I've grown up in church, so to speak, and be, you know, like I said, adopted my own faith in my late teens, and then have been studying the Word ever since. And over time, I realized that I really liked studying and reading the Bible. And what that has turned into here in the last three, four years of my life is I decided to actually help other people understand what I felt I had a good grasp on. So I, we started our YouTube channel called Kingdom and Context, and we try to approach the scriptures from a contextual basis and make sure that we're not taking verses out of context because that often will relate will result in some, you know, pretty strange teachings. And so we try to keep everything in its context and we feel like that brings clarity and comprehension to the word and kind of helps you understand it better, make it more applicable for your life. And so it's been growing. We're, we're, we're growing on YouTube and I'm enjoying and doing it. So that's um, what just, I, yeah, just so the audience knows now you are, you are a person, you consider yourself to be born again, but yeah. yet you, you also observe the law of Moses. Um, now, will you kind of explain that what, what happened there, that transition from traditional Christianity into uh, what you believe today? Sure. Yeah. I pretty much started when I started to realize the term that you just used, the law of Moses, was a cultural term, but was not the definition of a separate ideology. So the con the concept of the law of Moses is simply synonymous with the term in Scripture called the law of God or the commandments, as Jesus talks about in various passages. So it's I, I realized the whole time if um, Yeshua... Jesus Christ of Nazareth was doing these, this behavior of the commandments, and I'm supposed to disciple after him, I realized by searching out the context of these terms that I should be keeping the commandments. And ultimately, though, Russ, I mean, growing up in church, you're already taught to keep the commandments, let's be honest, right? You're taught to not kill people, to not you know, commit adultery, to not lie, to not, you know what I'm saying? To only worship God, to not worship idols, right? So we're already taught the, the commandments. Um, in a lot of churches you know, they'll, they'll have decent discipleship programs within their, either their Sunday schools or their small groups. But so many people, they kind of get lost in the semantics and they think that the commandments that they have to keep are just the 10 commandments minus the fourth, right? So, because <laughs> a lot of uh, Protestant churches forget that the Sabbath is an eternal command just to take a day off work and just rest on specifically on the seventh day on Saturday. Um, and for all your listeners out there, just let you know, I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm just a guy who believes in Jesus and disciples after him and reads the Bible. Um, that just happens to be one of the commandments that is an, called an eternal command in Scripture. As for the other commandments um, that is synonymously called either the law of God or the law of Moses, 
we see that modern churches do teach their congregants to abide in the behavior of those commandments. They just don't use that terminology very often, right? So for example, Russ, when you're when you're in church, and someone if, if you had a congregant that ever came up to you and asked you, hey, is it okay if I um, my dog's uh, my dog my neighbor's dog wandered into my yard can I keep him right I would tell you no because that would be stealing, right right? <laughs> right so that's in you know it's an exodus exodus chapter 21 or if say you know if one of your congregants came to you and said hey man I, I I've been wanting to go kidnap this person can I is that okay since that's not one of the ten commandments so I can go do that right of course you would tell that person no kidnapping is wrong um, that's Deuteronomy 24. Right, so there's there's a ton of instructions in um, in the prophets, the law and the prophets, the the Old Testament, what it's often called, that it was and is the behavior of our Messiah, but there's some semantic terminology that I think a lot of modern churches get kind of tripped up over. So that's yes, technically I'm a disciple of Christ who keeps the law of Moses, i.e., also called the law of God. Now, um, besides your own study and um, just your study of the scripture, was there anybody that you would say was a significant um, influence on you, like any type of teachers that may have uh, tried to guide you in that direction at all, or anybody even that you early on, I guess, in your incubation period um, that was just influential in the transition from uh, traditional Christianity to being Torah observant? Um. Technically, no, no. I mean, there's there's a wide variety of people that I would listen to, um, that, that not just on the radio, but also as YouTube became a thing over the last 15 years, you start listening to ministries online as well. Also, read books from popular and prominent pastors, both you know modern pastors and and ones from the past. And I and I just remember seeing certain statements that never made sense to me, right? And then. That these are from pastors from you know 50 years ago, even 100 and something years ago, and I just remember seeing certain certain statements that didn't quite I didn't understand them. I didn't and I didn't make it didn't jive. You know, when I with what I was um, what I with what I was being taught at traditional church, which is yes, we we want to be like Jesus, but then you start digging into the nitty gritty of what does that actually mean. You start seeing there's a there's a there's a problem with relating that terminology, that bumper sticker phrase of yeah, we want to be like Jesus. And that's how we're supposed to adopt our disposition, our behavior into technically, what does that mean for you? What are you guys supposed to be doing every day? You know, mm-hmm. and, I, and I used to actually ask pastors that at like in youth groups and different, you know, settings, young adults groups, I'll say, well, what, what are you supposed to do like every day? You know, like what? I was just, you know, you just love every, love your neighbors, love yourself, love God. And I'm like, yeah, well, how do you do that? Like, I mean, if I just have a good feeling, is it, is love defined as just a feeling? Is it just me? you know, having a good disposition or a good internal attitude towards my neighbor and towards others, because often I would offend my neighbor and not truly want to offend them. You see what I'm saying? Because I, for whatever reason, didn't, I had offended them ignorantly, not understanding what I was doing was making them upset or was somehow egregious to them. So as I started to study the scriptures more and more to come to, a, I had, I had heard that there were groups out there that were quote unquote following the law of Moses, right? And so I, I thought, you know, well, that seems a little extreme, you know, because I, too, was under the impression that I was falsely equating Judaism with keeping the commandments. And that's a huge distinction that I think a lot of Christians are never taught in modern churches. 
is that there is a major difference between those who are, are called rabbinic Jews who practice Judaism, who just like Jesus had to deal with in the gospels, they claim to keep the law of God, but they actually don't. They actually keep their old traditions and the Talmudic stuff, the Talmudic, Talmudic writings, rabbinical writings, and the opinions written therein often will supersede the actual literal instructions or plain wording of the text of the prophets and also even Moses, right? Just like, you know, Yeshua reprimanded them for in Mark 7 and Matthew 23, and then even in John 8. So this is where a lot of modern Christians I found, they conflate the idea of what does it mean to keep the commandments of God, which was the behavior of Jesus, versus what Judaism claims, right? And so they think if you're keeping the quote-unquote law of, law of God or the, the commandments, then you're suddenly, you know, you got to look like you're a, a rabbinic Jew or a Hasidic Jew in Israel today or in Israel of the past. And that is a huge, um, in my opinion, that's a huge gap in the knowledge of most believers in modern churches because they don't understand where rabbinic Judaism even came from, why Yeshua and the disciples were being persecuted by it, and how they were teaching something contrary to the actual law of God. This is why Yeshua just always went around trying to clear up the confusion and explain the actual law of God to them. And, the, and at the same time, reprimanding the Pharisees for pushing this tradition that made null the law of God in, in the effectual practice of the, of the people. So as I'm studying the history of Scripture, as I'm studying the context of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, and of course the Gospels, this is where I started testing the claims of people that I'd heard, you know, since about 2008, 2009, there's been an explosion of people all across the world that have started keeping the, the commandments as much as they can, as much as applied to them. And so I started testing the thing. Why are they doing that? Like, what's the deal? And so as I started to test some of their, their teachings or some of their claims, if you will, I started to say, okay, wow, I cannot find a divide line. I cannot find a break where Yeshua, the, the Messiah, or any of his disciples said, we're no longer going to do the behavior given to the prophets through, from God, the, the same behavior that Jesus did perfectly. We're no longer going to do that. Instead, we're going to just walk in love, whatever that arbitrarily means. I never saw that being commanded by the disciples or taught by Jesus. In fact, I just emphatically, the more I searched out and learned the Old Testament, I just saw the disciples, including Paul, emphatically doing the behavior and teaching others to do the behavior of the Old Testament. And that's where I was like, okay, wait a minute, there's something here. And I started digging in a little deeper. So it wasn't like uh, something that you came across on YouTube one day. Um, and the reason why I'm asking this, because I, I, I truly think that most people are going to maybe have that thought in the back of their head that well, this guy, Sean, he came across some wacko on YouTube or uh, got uh, a book uh, given to him by somebody, and then he was indoctrinated into this type of thing. Yeah. Um, but what you're saying is that you didn't have anybody kind of discipling you at all into this. You kind of did this on your own. That's right. In fact, if, if your listeners would like to know some of the books I read before I came to this understanding, and I, I could still read some of them today, and there's not, not a lot wrong with them entirely. Um, there is some doctrinal stuff that I would probably challenge, but, um, you know, you've got some of the greats, right? You got Charles Swindoll, you got A.W. Tozer, you got, um, I used to read C.S. Lewis, I used to read uh, Oswald Chambers, I used to re you read his daily devotional for like 10 years, my utmost first highest, I don't know if you've ever read that before. Um, I know that that's kind of encouraged and passed around in a lot of churches in the Baptist denomination. And so, I mean, I used to read all kinds of 
all kinds of books that uh, you would typically find in a Christian book section at the store. And then start reading about, you know, preachers of the past, you know what I'm saying? Some of the more famous preachers of the past. And, and I, to, personally, I thought, well, there's, you know, there's a lot of talk about serving, serving God and loving God, but there's not a lot of definition to these terms. And that's where just the way my mind works, I'm looking for context of, of ideas and terms because it helps you understand things better. It's, it's what I consider is a part of reading comprehension, natural reading comprehension, but it's it, because I love writing and I love reading. And so therefore it's kind of how my mind works, but the average person does not feel that way that they don't, they're not interested in that kind of stuff, you know? So um, I'm actually an aspiring author. I, I've published two books in the past and um, I have a, a big series that I'm, Lord willing, going to be able to release in the future on um, the the story of the flood of Noah. And so my mind kind of thinks like this already. I'm already dissecting the ideas and terms as I'm reading them. I'm looking at the prose. I'm looking at the author, who it's intended to go to. What does this line up with what I read in the previous chapter? And, you know, that's kind of how my mind dissects words already. But what we see in a lot of modern churches that is not practiced. So what I just described about how we read the text, you know, read the entire chapter, compare other chapters and, and look at the concepts and how they line up, find the definitions of the words being used. So you understand what's being said, like the average congregant that becomes a believer and starts going to a church, they're not taught that kind of behavior. Instead, they sit and listen to a guy who, and in a lot of church, I know this isn't for every church, but in a lot of churches, they give a couple scriptures and then they talk with inspirational anecdotes for the next 55 minutes to fill up the hour. And therefore the, the, the congregants comes away feeling good for a while, right? And encouraged in their faith, but not gaining a contextual and comprehensive grasp of the books in the Bible. So therefore they have to internally and emotionally attach themselves to mantras or bumper sticker phrases, as I call them, to which is what pieces together a coherent statement of faith. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But many times when you start really digging in to those statements of faith and you say, okay, can you define this part of the statement of faith? The average congregate cannot do that. And that's where I was. That's the kind of person I was. And so as I kept reading the book and kept studying it and, and looking for, you know, like I said, context and definitions, I started to come to this realization that the behavior of Jesus was already outlined in the Old Testament. And that's why he's always quoting the Old Testament. And that's why he's telling us in you know, Luke 10 and Matthew 19 and John 14 and 15 and, and other places, he's telling people to keep the commandments of God and to do them because that is what you're judged by. And this is coming from the judge, Yeshua, Jesus, of Christ, Jesus Christ. So he's going to be judging us and he's going to be judging us off of a standard of behavior. This is what he talks about in Matthew 12, uh, 38, and also... Um, other places, right? We're judged by every word indeed, Revelation 20. And so he's the judge that tells us what we're going to be evaluated off of. Now, will our behavior ever be like his? No, I'm not trying to say that, that I walk around, you know, and have perfect like Yeshua was, but I do understand that. I mean, that's literally why Jesus has become our high priest so that he can, he can, you know, create atonement for us when we mess up. That's first John one nine. But at the same time, he does ask us to practice that behavior, which was his behavior, because that's in a sense like he, he of course, you know, through his grace and mercy, he's going to if he if he deems us worthy of the resurrection to save us, he's going to do that because he's the one that's appointed to do that as the judge, as he explains in John chapter five. 
But in the meantime, I just can't go off and do occultic behaviors, right? I, I mean, I think the average person would agree with that. Like the average Christian would understand that it's not right that I go off and start sacrificing babies. It's not right that I go off and start, you know, having illicit affairs with a bunch of women outside of marriage. It's not right that you go and you rob, you know, people like that's, that's bad behavior. And this is the opposite of what our creator and his son, the Messiah instructs us to behave as he knows that we're going to mess up. That's why he has the priesthood for us. That's why Yeshua was nominated upon his resurrection to be in this priesthood of this Melchizedek priesthood, to, as Hebrews chapter eight talks about, to minister on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary above. So, with that, because he knows we're gonna we're gonna sin and we're gonna mess up. That's kind of the the point of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so that's where we have a lot of solace. We have a lot of comfort, if you will, to know that even when we're trying to adopt that behavior over the course of which is called sanctification, right? It's part of our discipleship to adopt the behavior of the Messiah, which is keeping the commandments. Even when we mess up, we have a faithful uh, high priest who is, you know, just who will cleanse us in, uh, of all unrighteousness, you know, as we're told. So mm -hmm. this is a great comfort to me because I heard come, you know, I heard a lot of people on both sides of this argument saying some people saying you got to keep the law to be saved and other people saying, well, you've got to, uh, there's no way you can keep the law. It's a burden. And therefore, you know, you're, you're trying to earn your salvation. And I'm like, well, I didn't see either one of those hyperbolic arguments in the scriptures. Those are two extremes of one argument. Instead in the scriptures, what I saw was God asked you to practice his behavior. It's Leviticus 18, four and five, that you practice his precepts and statutes, which are perfect. And you are to disciple into that, which is a part of, which is called sanctification. Right, that we're growing in the knowledge of God, as First Peter talks about. But along the way, you are going to make mistakes, and that's why He gave you His Son as our High Priest to make atonement mm -hmm. for you when you do. And then at the end of that process, like Yeshua talks about Matthew twenty-four, that He who endures to the end will be saved. So as you endure through this process, we call life. We're showing Him all along the way that we do want to be like Him, because we're actually trying, we're actually practicing His behavior, even though we mess up, we don't give up. We keep going. And then that's where he, uh, he alone, Yeshua alone, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has, the, has been granted the power to raise us from the dead and give us eternal life on the day of the Lord. As Re Revelation 3, 5 talks about, he calls our name out before the Father, and he um, raises us to eternal life, gives us our robes of white, and that we will then, according to the promises of the prophets in Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34, will have his laws written on our hearts. The commandments will be written on our heart and we'll always faithfully do them. We will never transgress them again. And that way we will be resurrected and made perfect like Jesus was resurrected, made perfect as well. Um, would, so I'm, I think it's safe to say that you, you believe that we are to keep the Torah or follow the Torah or the law of Moses, as some call it. Um, under the new covenant. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. The, the, Torah, the word Torah just means instructions. It's not a special word, really. It just means instructions. And when you look back, you know, like Genesis 26, five, where it talks about Abraham was keeping the Torah. If like, if you look in the Hebrew, because the word Torah is just a, is a Hebrew word, right? So if you look in Genesis 26, five in the Hebrew, Abraham was keeping the Torah. Um, this is way before Mount Sinai. And that's another big misconception that's taught by Judaism, by the way. Uh, which people in the modern church have adopted and picked up and pastors have propagated, um, poor, you know, mistakenly, they've, because they believe Judaism is a description 
and they think that the Torah or the instructions of God, the commandments, were only given in Mount Sinai. That's not even close to true. Um, this is we can we see the the patriarchs before Mount Sinai in Genesis and early Exodus doing the law of God, the Torah, the instructions of God, all over the place, and it's a it's an integral part of their faith in the covenant. And so the the promise of the covenant, which leads us to the new covenant, right? The promise of that covenant is that we receive eternal life and have his instructions written on our hearts so that we will always do them. That is the literal promise of the old covenant transitioning to the new covenant. And this is where the fulfillment of that we're, we're, we're in the intermediate stage, if we will, with the deposit of the Holy spirit that we receive now with Yeshua as our high priest, as, as Acts chapter two, verse 33 and 34 says that he gets to pour the spirit out upon us as he wills and help us through this life, right. To do what's right. But, we have the deposit now, as Hebrews 8 talks about, but at the resurrection, we get the fullness thereof. So this is why we're still learning that behavior now. This is why we still have sin in our life now. But at the fullness, at the fulfillment of the new covenant, we actually get a perfected body, and we will never have to learn his behavior again. As, mm -hmm. as Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34 literally says, which is repeated by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. Um. Would you would you say that um, if there was a a temple in Jerusalem today, that we would still need to follow temple ordinances? No, because now you're getting into prophecy. So prophecy tells us that there was going to be a uh, basically two temples, and that the third one is not going to be until the New Jerusalem descends, as we see in Revelation 21. So the anything built in between then, and this is a I guess a maybe even a different topic on actual prophecy and eschatology, but you know, anything between the destruction of the second temple in AD 70 and then the new Jerusalem that comes down on the day after the day of the Lord, um, anything that's built in between then is not decreed by God. It's not intended. It's just men playing, playing religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like basically when the third temple is built, you're not going to buy a plane ticket and go over there and uh, offer no. a sacrifice. No, because the, the only temple that, that is in prophecy emphatically from Old Testament to New that I would go to, quote-unquote, worship at um, would be the New Jerusalem when that comes down. And a lot of people really struggle because they read Revelation 21, 22, and they say, but Sean, wait, there's no temple in the New Jerusalem. Look at that verse. And I'm like, hey, check out the Greek word that's poorly translated in English right there because it, it talks about the Holy of Holies, that there's no shrine. There's no actual empty room where the Ark of the Covenant was in the New Jerusalem because, like it says at the rest of that verse, the, the Almighty and the, and the Lamb, the Father and the Son, will be the the shrine, the holy holies, if you will, because that room will be filled now with the Father and the Son. So it won't be an empty room anymore like it was in the, the tabernacle during the days of Solomon. It'll actually be a room that's filled with the Father and the Son who sit from their seat of authority from the throne of God. And uh, so this is where um, it just takes, like I said, digging in context for definitions of words, which sometimes means you got to look up the, the meanings of the Hebrew and the Greek. Um, and that's so that's where I tell I try to encourage people not to fall for the deception that Judaism is propagating. Remember what I told you before, we have this long-standing enemy of Christ, and that is an entire separate religion that's called Judaism. And they have been, these are the same guy, the same group of ideological believers that we see Yeshua interacting with in the gospels and persecuting the disciples in, in the book of Acts, right? This is the same group that was, you know, basically in the, in the first century, telling people that if you believed in Jesus, you can't be a Jew. They were, I mean, they had, they had made it a, not just a racist issue, but they had made it an entire separate religion. 
So this is that same, the same group that starts tinkering with the Septuagint text and trying to change it because they didn't like the translation and how much it supported the prophecies of Jesus. The same brood of vipers, the same thieves, the same murderers that murdered our Messiah. And some of those guys still perpetuated for the last 2000 years in their own little religion. And that has still an influence on the world today. So this whole concept of, you know, uh, this Zionistic Judaism is not scriptural and they intend to build another building over there that they're going to call a temple and it's not going to, it's not going to be what God has ordained. And this is where they have their own Messiah and they're not, they're not going to call him Jesus Christ. <laughs> they have their own guy that they think is a Messiah that will go into that temple. So, so in Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter 10, what, what exactly are they being warned about? Because contextually I've always understood Hebrews 10 and, to me, uh, be a warning about going back into um, the sacrificial system and going back into Jerusalem to offer up sacrifices. Um, what is your take on Hebrews ten? What is he warning them about, and why is he warning them? Well, well, brother, I got to I got to ask you for clarification. Hebrews ten is a big chapter, and it's at the tail end of several chapters of context. So, are you? What, can so, you maybe give a yeah. Better... Let's just let's just uh, look at what he what he's saying here. Where you, you know the verses one through eighteen is saying that the for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. All right, who, and who then, is offering those sacrifices though? That's where chapter nine comes in, and that goes all the way back to yeah. chapter seven, the context of comparing the priesthood of Jesus to the priesthood of the of the Levitical priests mm -hmm. and how there was a uh, there was weakness, there was sin within the Levitical people, the Levitical priesthood, because they were just mortals who mm -hmm. sinned, right? And, they're, and, they're, and the writer of Hebrews is comparing and juxtaposing that with the priesthood of Yeshua, who's perfect, who doesn't sin. So therefore, he's talking about there were the Levitical priests, when they had to do their Day of Atonement, they had to bring in, a, in Leviticus 16, their uh, sacrifice for themselves and for their families to atone for their own mistakes before they would bring in the, the goats to, to do a sacrifice and atonement for the actual congregation, the larger, the larger people, the corporately. So this is where that there's juxtaposing that, that even when during that process, it was not making those people complete. And that's what the word perfect is being used in, in Hebrews chapter 10, one. Mm -hmm. And that word means complete, making, meaning wholehearted, meaning doing the behavior of God, which is the commandments according to the, the old Testament until death. Right. Because we saw that many of those guys still sinned. And then there's many, many eras in the, the history of Israel where the priesthood actually stopped doing the law of God. Right. They abandoned their posts, so to speak. They were supposed to be the religious leaders of the people that always were faithfully doing the law of God. And so they themselves were not perfect and complete in doing that. Yeshua is. He always will be. And this is where he's different. And he doesn't have to make atonement for himself because he doesn't have sin to atone for first. Mm -hmm. And he's already made perfect in his resurrected body. Um, even though he didn't, while he was in the body of flesh, he didn't sin either. But even still now, he doesn't have to, you know, we have a high priest who's not like these frail and weak high priests of the past. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I want to, I want to read, um, I want to read verse 19, uh, Let's see, 19 through, we'll stop at 30. Um, I want to read that. I want to get your take on a couple things specifically. And I want to point those things out first, and I'm going to let you go ahead and take the wheel and ro roll with it. Um, it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience in our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Let us consider one let, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who has trodden underfoot the Son of God, and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Now, there's a couple things that I want you to address specifically what is he talking about for if we sin willfully okay i want to know what that willful sin is and i want to know when it says after that we have received the knowledge of the truth i want to know exactly what truth he's talking about there and i would also like you wait, to wait, which, address which uh, oh, ver take... verse yeah verse 26 i just want i, I want you to break yeah. down the whole passage but um in in the midst of your breakdown i definitely mm -hmm. want you to touch on um these three things in verse 26, I want to know what this, the willful sin okay. is, the the truth, the specific knowledge of the truth. What is he talking about there? Right. And what does he mean when he says there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins? Okay, sure. And what, if I may ask real quick, what do you think it means? Um. All right. Well, I'm going to edit this out on my uh, on my podcast because I don't like to put my you, you know how my you know how my format is. I try to okay. be neutral when I'm okay. interviewing people and I don't want people to think, to listen and say, well, he's picking this side or he's picking that side. That's the whole point sure. of my, sure. my, uh, form. So like when, if y'all come over and you listen to it on mine, I'm going to edit this out just because I want people to understand that okay. I'm trying to appear neutral and not let my opinion sway the people who listen. So, um, I believe this is, um, where I'm at today. Now I'm, I'm always willing to admit that I am wrong, okay. but this is what I believe today. I believe that the willful sin was forsaking the assembling of themselves together. And what I believe contextually historic, the historic context was they were people that were, they, they, especially the Hebrew Christians who have, um, have, have accepted Jesus Christ as Messiah. They were being pressured to go back into the sacrificial system and offer up sacrifices, um, the like the blood of the lamb and things like that, um, or the the atonement. It's all that. You, you know what I'm saying? So I believe that they were being pressured because of persecution to go back into temple sacrifices and things like that. And and so when if they were to go back after they received the knowledge of the truth, which I believe the truth is what he's been talking about. Um, all in this chapter about Jesus Christ being um, that his blood is what really takes away sins, not the blood of bulls or goats. It was it was the blood of Jesus Christ that takes away our sins, not not animal sacrifices. And then um, 
when he says there remains no more sacrifice for sins, I believe that's exactly what he means. If you go there to try to make a sacrifice for your sins, there is none because those things can't take away your sins. It has to be Jesus Christ. Right. Okay. Thank you for, thank you for uh, expounding on, on what you think it means. It's because there's a couple different parts in there that you, like you said, it's kind of a three-part question from your understanding. Um, I'm going to actually screen share this real quick for everyone to watch as we run through some of this. Okay, because this is the the text that's being asked about. So the the you're saying that you believe the will for sinning concept is forsaking the assembling of themselves, and you specifically think that context is referring to the assembling of those who believers in Christ, and therefore they you think that there's been a dichotomy that's drawn amongst those believers of Christ in that first century where they no longer participate with the Levites at the temple, but now they have their own system that they've set up amongst themselves. And therefore, that's the assembly that you think is. That, am I understanding that right? Right, because I believe that there was a there was a coming judgment that Jesus pronounced on the temple, and right. I believe that they, if they were in still believing that the blood of bulls and goats could take away their sins, right. and they were still practicing Judaism, that they were going to be swept right. away in that punishment. So, like I said earlier, the beginning of chapter ten flows over from chapter nine, as you and I both know. In the Greek, there were no chapters or verses originally, and so that's that. There's a context there of the first few verses of chapter 10, which is speaking in contrast to the Levitical priesthood and what they specifically had to do that Jesus does not have to do. But if we're going to speak, if we we're going to be looking at the idea of was there a stark dichotomy between the new believers of Yeshua, believers that were converts from the disciples in the first century AD, and did they consider the temple and the Levites who practiced at the temple as something that was, you know, done away with, so to speak, for lack of a better term right now. Let's look in Hebrews chapter 8, just two chapters earlier, where we are told the opposite, okay? And that's where we see right here, and it says, Now the main point in what has been said is this, this is Hebrews 8.1, that we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every priest, every, excuse me, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this, this being Jesus Christ, high priest, also has something to offer. Now, as a little quick break, that is, this text is basically saying our high priest ministering in the true heavenly tabernacle above, not the one on the ground, that he is doing actual sacrifices. That's the, the holy gifts that are defined in Leviticus. So that means he's actually doing the job of the priesthood in the Father's sanctuary above. And then it says in verse 4, Now if he were on earth, he being Jesus, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts, the, the sacrifices, according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, foresee that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. And this is when you go into Exodus 24 and beyond, and you start to see the vision that in you know, Exodus 24, 25, and 26, uh, where this these words are being pulled from, uh, that you see Moses actually saw in the vision on Mount Sinai, the heavenly tabernacle that Yeshua is ministering in, which he was making a replica for them to make on the ground below. And appointed to serve in that replica were the Levitical bloodline, right? The Levitical uh, descendants of Levi. And in the days of Moses, that was Aaron and his his sons. So 
that's where that the writer of Hebrews in verse four is telling you that even if Jesus were still here, he wouldn't be a priest because there's already people that's been assigned to do that on the earth. The appointment of Jesus's priesthood in the Melchizedek order, which is higher in authority and different than the the earthly Levitical order, that is what's already he's already fulfilling that in the tabernacle above. So he's his position, his job, so to speak, is in the heavenly tabernacle. The Levite's job was in the earthly tabernacle. And they're already doing that. And so the Levitical, Levitical priests, they can't go to heaven's tabernacle and do their job. That would be out of order. Jesus, if he's on the earth, he can't do the job in the temple down here. He's not a part of that Levitical order. That's out of order. So this is what it's juxtaposed and explaining in this verse right here. And while the, he the writer of Hebrews is writing this, the temple had not been destroyed yet. There's literally still Levitical priests doing the job that they're that's called eternal, the law of God, in the temple in Jerusalem before 70 AD, while he's writing this, that are offering gifts, which is sacrifices. And I'm going to show you how that was still taking place to the point where even the disciples were actively engaging in that, um, all as a group, right? So this is when Paul returns um, his voyage, right? And he goes back to Jerusalem for Pentecost to meet up with uh, the other the other disciples, both you know Peter and James and the other guys. It says in verse 17 of Acts 21, he says, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And he had greeted them and began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they'd been glorifying God. And they began to say, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And the reason why he's having even say this is because what I was trying to explain to you earlier from the, the gospels is that the, the rabbinical Pharisees that were preaching Talmudic Judaism was absconding, they were they were taking people away from the law of God. And this is what that this is why John the Baptist was. Uh, excluded from their ranks and was persecuted unto death. Eventually, this is why Jesus was persecuted unto death. This is why the, the you know Paul was always running around talking about the circumcision party of the Jews that were always uh, giving him a hard time, like a thorn in his flesh, because they were constantly coming in behind him everywhere he went after he made converts and trying to sway his converts over to Judaism, because it was a different religion. It's a different concept. It still is today. That's why they reject Yeshua, which, as Jesus explains to us in the Gospels, if you reject him, you're rejecting the Father. So it doesn't matter how much they hold up the, you know, the Torah, they're not following it because they don't believe the Messiah that was sent by the Father. They've rejected the Father and the Son. It's a different religion. And this is why in this passage, the disciples are happy to hear the reports from Paul, who comes back um, talking about how many people have begun to believe of their fellow brethren of the Jews, because that means that they're being pulled out of a false ideology, a false religion, and being brought to the truth, which is the behavior of Jesus, the law. And they've been told about you, I'll keep going to verse 21, they've been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or not to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourselves along with them. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, and all will know that there's nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. So for the listeners, what we see in verse 24 from, from verse 21 of Acts 21 is the disciples greet Paul, and they hear some of his good stories, but then they also say, well, we also heard some bad rumors about you, that you're teaching people not to keep the law of Moses, which, i.e., is the law of God, 
Guys, Moses didn't invent anything. He's literally just a dude that went on the mountain and got instructions and passed them down to the people. Okay, so that term law of Moses is not is not a special idea. It doesn't put him into the bracket of creating a religion. He's literally just the proxy. He's the, the agent of the father to receive all the instructions and then to try to teach them to the people. So he didn't make anything up. It's all coming from the, the creator, the almighty. And, and so Paul comes back. He's meeting with the other disciples. They're having a conversation about some of his successes and his missionary journeys. And then they start talking about, well, here's some of the bad stuff we heard about you. And prove to you, prove to us that this is not true. Prove to us that you do walk orderly and keep the law, as it says in verse 24. And and prove, and the way they're asking him to prove it is to take a vow. And this is the, the number six vow of the Nazarite. And to do this vow, uh, the reason why I'm going into this, uh, Russ, is to do this vow, you have to have an active temple with the priests. And this is, you cannot complete this vow that they're asking him to do without an active priesthood ministering in a temple. That's part of the instructions in number six. So it says in verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. That's, that's in um, Exodus 34. And from blood, that's in Leviticus 17. And from what is strangled from fornication, that's also in Leviticus 17 and Deuteronomy 22. It says, then Paul took the men the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification. According to number six, this is what he's doing until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. And this, of course, if you read the, the following chapters, this is where the, the Jews who practiced Talmudic Judaism, the antagonists who rejected Christ and his followers, they come and arrest Paul. And this is where he's no longer able to go on missionary journeys as much. So that's, that's the disciples in, after the ascension of Christ in the first century, using the priesthood on the ground with the temple because that's exactly what Hebrews chapter 8 explains. That's what's appointed for them. That's what their, their uh, job is. That's what God said he would do with them. Yeshua, our Messiah, he does his priesthood in the tabernacle of the Father in heaven above. It's a totally different location. So that's why until that temple was destroyed, as prophecy talks about, as Yeshua talked about, until that temple was you know, burned by the Romans and the people were scattered out of Jerusalem, in AD 70, it was still in active use. And, but that, like I said, that was part of the prophecy that was intended to happen. And then the rest of that prophecy tells us that the temple is never going to come back into use until the new Jerusalem descends and the day of the Lord happens. So, okay. so we'll go into the, the second question of Acts or Hebrews 10. Um, sorry to belabor that, but I just wanted to there's, it's a big point of context. That's why I was saying if you're going to start in Hebrews 10, there's a lot of context we're skipping over. Yeah, so like 10, 1026, uh, the sin willfully, the knowledge of the truth, and mm -hmm. what he means, there's no more sacrifice. So, yes, yeah, so I, I personally believe the whole sinning willfully is not about them participating with the Levites because that's what they're supposed to be doing. That's their brethren. Many of these believers are Levites that they're they're dealing with, and that that's not – like we just saw in Acts 21, that's not the context of them sinning willfully. It's, it's the knowledge of the truth that they've received is of who Yeshua is, which is what I think is being expressed to us in verses 19 through 25, saying that, you know, we have confidence in verse 20, 19 to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Okay. And this is, it says by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, because he could not get to his priesthood position until he went through what was prophesied for him. 
which was to have his flesh, you know, beaten and torn and crucified unto death. And then he's in the heart of the earth three days, three nights, and he's resurrected and glorified. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. The reason why he ascends is to go do his priesthood position. That's why verse 21 immediately follows up with, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, you see what I'm saying? That's why Hebrews 8, two chapters earlier, tells us that the house of God that he's ministering is called the true tabernacle. And the one on the ground that the Levites are ministering was called the replica, which is called a, a copy and a shadow, right? And this is why I, I was saying earlier, you have in, in Leviticus 18, 4 and 5, that the creator is telling all of us, including the Levites who are doing that part of the law, to practice his behavior. He's doing his behavior for real without messing up above. That's why there's a tabernacle in heaven. So that same behavior, he asks us on the earth to practice it, knowing that we're mortal, beset with weaknesses, and they're going to fail at some point. So this is why the writer of Hebrews from chapter one, all the way through up to chapter 10, is trying to express to us the difference in our amazing Messiah who has this high priest position, which is even greater than the angels, and also definitely greater than the Levites on the earth. So in that context, He's, he's reminding the readers that we do have a great high, high priest who's able to, let verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. What is the assurance of faith? And this is what Paul talks about in Romans 8 and many other places. This is the blessed hope that we have, that all of this for us is leading to our resurrection. That is the promise of the covenant. That is what Yeshua makes possible. That is what he is literally put in charge over as in, his, in his authoritative high priest position because he now has access to the spirit of God without limit to give it out as he chooses. And part of that is resurrecting us. And that's what, you know, that's a, maybe a whole nother show, but uh, we talk about that a lot on kingdom and context. And then it says there in verse 23, he talks about um, holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who's promised is faithful. And he's, they're always reminding the first century of that. Just like you said, they're dealing with persecution on all sides, not just from their, their fellow brethren uh, who are part of, you know, the, the quote unquote Jews of Judaism, but also from the Romans, you know, there were Christians were being persecuted on every side. And their great hope was that even if they were martyred and persecuted to death in this lifetime, they would be raised to eternal life. That is what they were hoping in. Yeshua would be faithful to administer as a part of his priesthood. So therefore, that's why verse 24 would come in naturally to say, therefore, keep your behavior in line by stimulating each other towards love and good deeds. And those, of course, those good deeds are, are defined for us by the, the commandments, because that is the, you know, let your light so shine before men so they may see your good works. Glorify your fathers who's in heaven. This is what Yeshua did. Um, this is what the, in Proverbs chapter six, the Torah is called the light of God, right? Psalm 119 also calls the Torah, the actual behavior of the father. So, that's why you don't want to forsake assembling together, as it talks about in verse 29, because that's how you're going to be around each other to stimulate one another in your faith towards love and good deeds, right? And that's why it says, all the more as you see the day drawing near, for if we sin, go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and this to me, it just means now that you know who your priest is, now that you know what he's going to do for you, now that you know the game, so to speak, if you go on sinning willfully, you're rejecting all that. You're ignoring that because as we have defined for us in first John three and other places, sin is literally defined as transgressing the, the law of God. Keeping the commandments is not sinning. And then if you do not keep the commandments, you are sinning. This is also uh, how we get the definition of the word righteousness in Deuteronomy six twenty five. 
that if we do this, the, the principles that God laid out, the instructions he laid out, it'll be considered righteousness for us. And if we don't do those, we're considered unrighteous and therefore we're in sin and we need to repent. So this is why it says there would be nothing left in verse 27, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, a fury of a fire which will consume the adversary, speaking about the lake of fire. Uh, because that is, if you're rejecting the knowledge of the truth, which is who Jesus is, that he, you know, he died for your sins, he steps into this priesthood role to make atonement for your sins and raise you to eternal life. That's the story. If you reject that, then yes, you're rejecting Christ and he's gonna, you, you get thrown in the lake of fire because you don't want to be a part of his kingdom when it comes down. And that's what you, um, and that's what you would say uh, where it says there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. You believe that that's alluding to that? Yeah, if you're rejecting the high priest, what he's doing for you, then then yes, he's not there's he's not going to be making atonement for you. And like I just I try to explain in, in Hebrews chapter eight, it it tells us where Yeshua is actually making atonement for us, and that's going to be in the heavenly tabernacle. This is why, you know, it, we have a high priest as as he's prophesied of him um, in Hebrews chapter five. Again, more context previously in the book, Hebrews chapter five, seven through ten, who is going to be a high priest forever. Not just for one day. He's a high priest forever, um, and the reason for that is, you know, First Timothy two five that there was, you know, one God and one man, Jesus Christ, who mediates between God and man. Mm-hmm. So um, now, just uh, I, I kind of, I can kind of figure out what you're going to say uh, um, before we get there because I've been paying attention to what you're saying, so I'm kind of following your thread. But um, I do have a kind of off the cuff question there. When it sure. says in verse number 18, and I know you're going to look at the context, and that's that's what I expect, but I want to I want you to look at verse number 18 with me. It says, now where the remission of these is, speaking about sins and iniquities, um, there is no more offering for sin. Right. What is he talking about? Well, in, in verse 17, which is also in verse 16, that's just being repeated from Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. Like I said, it's the fulfillments of the actual old covenant, which is the new covenant, uh, which is at the resurrection, you get on your new heart. Remember what Paul explains to us in first Corinthians 15, right? That you're raised with an, you have a corruptible body now, but in the, you will be raised with an incorruptible body. So this is what Jeremiah is speaking about in the old Testament, where he says at, you know, that when God does a new thing, right. And you step into this covenant that he makes with us, that he puts the laws on our heart and in our minds, and therefore, we will not teach each other anymore to, to you know, know the Lord because everyone will know him from the least to the greatest. But then verse 17, he's pulling from, I think it's Ezekiel 37, where he talks about once we are actually resurrected, he says, I'll remember their sins no more because we are fully and finally atoned for. And we will never have to sin again because we have an incorruptible body, incorruptible heart with his behavior imprinted on our heart so that we're doing the behavior of Jesus all the time. And therefore, there's eternal forgiveness for all the things that are done past, or, you know, are in the past. So therefore, we don't need to do an actual offering for sin, because there. Do you, do you remember in the Torah, Russ, that there was different offerings, and some of them were for sin, and some of them were for Thanksgiving? Different, and, uh, yeah, different things. Yeah. And I and I get that, but like as yeah. far as the people that are listening, um, they may not be privy to a lot of that. Sure, that's why um, I always tell people if you're going to try to dissect the Book of Hebrews, you need to put it down. And learn the book of Leviticus first, because the book of Hebrews is just talking about priests for the, for like ninety percent of it. And if you don't understand the priesthood that's defined for us in Leviticus, then you're going to struggle with the language in the book of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. So I want to 
I, I hate that we're parked here just in Hebrews 10 for so yeah. long, but uh, if you don't mind, I have a couple more questions. Sure. Um, where it says, starting in verse number four, it says, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, God. Above, when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Mm-hmm. Um, now, why why does it appear to say that God is not interested in the sacrifices of blo- of of the bulls and goats for sins, but He's more He He, he He's only going to take pleasure in the sacrifice of His Son. Well, because that again, that's what's promised about the messiah right because the the when you sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats uh what's technically not the uh, when you sacrifice the animals it was not creating eternal life for you and me because there was always a problem with the person doing the sacrificing this is what i was explaining about the like chapter seven of hebrews explains the levitical priesthood that is beset with weaknesses okay so this is where we needed a perfect mediator we needed a perfect priest to mediate between us and the Father. And that's what was prophesied of the Son to be made incarnate in the flesh and, you know, live, die, falsely accused, murdered, resurrected, and then upon his glorified position be put into this priesthood to do exactly that, to mediate between us and the Almighty. And that's why he says, you, you know, sacrifice and offerings you're not desired because they're not going to create resurrection. That's that's the... the, the uh, corrupted priesthood of mankind who's beset with sin and weaknesses going through the motions of the law because they're practicing. They can't do it perfectly. That was only appointed for the son. And so now that he is, you know, made resurrected and glorified, made perfect, he can go to the actual true tabernacle, not the replica on the ground, but he can stand before the father in the true tabernacle and, and do his priestly duties, which is what he, the previous chapters in chapter five says and chapter eight as well. Okay. So it's not saying that he doesn't like the sacrifice. Cause remember there's more than there's more sacrifices than just sin offerings. There's a whole bunch of them. Many of them that he calls eternal and then he enjoys because they're considered festivals of joy. But specifically it says in verse five, a body you prepared for me. And by the way, this is quoting from the Septuagint translation. So a lot of people struggle to find this verse in the old Testament, but you have to, you have to look at the Septuagint version in the old Testament. Um, but this body that's prepared for him obviously is him being, you know, first Timothy three sixteen, right? The, the mystery godliness that he comes from to be manifested in the flesh through the womb of Mary so that he can sacrifice his own life, his own will, his own desire. Remember he's praying in the garden and he's like, you know, it's not my will, but your will be done. Father, if, if there's any way, would you take this cup from me? But not my will, your will be done. He's giving over his own desire, you know, it, it, while in the mortal flesh in order to still be faithful to the father's plan for him, which was to, you know, come in the flesh, knowing that he's going to face persecution because he comes to an evil and adulterous generation. They're going to kill him, but the father's going to glorify him and vindicate him in front of everyone and raise him from the dead. And then literally ascend him to heaven because he now has a body that can 
pass through the levels of the firmament, as Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 explains, more context further back, so that he can go to this tabernacle and do his priestly duties on our behalf in front of the Father. So that's that's the once and all for all sacrifice, which was his physical body that he's not going to have to do that process over and over. He's only going to die once. He's only going to give his life selflessly one time to get to that position of eternal priesthood for us. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That's why why verse seven goes on. and says, therefore, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, because he's talking about sacrifice of his personal body and his personal life and desires in order to do the father's will. And that is something that none of us have been able to achieve. So do you believe that the the sin offering, uh, when they offered animal sacrifices, do you think that those are able to take away sins? No, it's the it's the priest that they're going. Do you not you guys um, uh, just in case anyone in your audience is not familiar with the Old Testament when they're making a, a sacrifice? OK, especially the sin offering Leviticus six. They're making an, uh, a meal with the father. And that was the part of they needed a certain altar. They needed a certain cook. That's the priests. They needed a certain recipe. That's the animals and the, the salt and the certain oils and seasonings. And they would also bring a grain offering at times, which would be like cooking bread. And then they would bring, you know, a wine offering at, at, according to the Sabbath sacrifices and different things, which were also sin atonement sacrifices. So they're literally just you have chefs stepping up to a specific altar which is a, like considered like a cooking surface because that's what it was. And they had even cooking utensils like we do on big grills today. And you're, you got a chef stepping up to a grill with your ingredients and your food, and you're going to make a meal before the Father. And that was making atonement. So that meal, that, that atonement, it obviously cannot take away. Obviously, there's symbology in that act that it's that process itself especially here on the ground on earth, cannot take away sin. It's all about the mediator. This is why you see this same type of language um, we're, uh, being talked about in verse 8 of Hebrews 10, 8, where it says, And saying above sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, you have sin you have not desired, nor have you taken them in pleasure. He's pulling that from Isaiah, where they were in rebellion, and the priesthood was in rebellion, and they were going through the motions of the sacrifices, but it, it didn't mean anything to the Father. Because the hearts of the priests were corrupt, and they did not love the Father. They were going through the motions because that's what they were trained to do, but they were also worshiping other gods at the same time. And we see this um, in Ezekiel's vision as well in chapter 8 of Ezekiel, how they were in the temple worshiping other gods besides Yahweh. So we have a corrupted priesthood that reoccurs over and over throughout history amongst amongst the Israelites because they're not the Messiah. They're not the Son of Man, and they were they had beset with weaknesses, right? They they had a sin problem, and so the Father, this whole time, he needed someone that had a good heart, that whose heart was blameless, to step before him and make atonement for you and me. So this is why in Revelation three five, he actually calls our name out before the Father and the angels in heaven to resurrect us. That is the final moment of him doing his priestly position on our behalf where he intercedes for us and vouches if i could put it in modern vernacular he vouches for us brother all right so imagine imagine you and i worked at uh, or imagine i worked at a like a, a factory right and i've been there like 10 years and i was a supervisor and i was really good and, and the department that i worked in was really good and then you you put you put an application to get hired on there and it's like your first week you're going through training and you're in my department 
and you make a mistake on the job and you then, <laughs> you know, you're going to get in trouble. You might get fired. Right. But I step in and I say, you know what? No, I'll, I'll take it. It's my fault. I'm still training him because I don't make any mistakes. I've been there 10 years. I know what I'm doing. I don't make mistakes, but yet you've made a mistake. Therefore, I turn to the boss and say, no, don't fire him. I'll train him. It's all right. I, I vouch for him. And then over time, as you mature, as you disciple under me as a supervisor, you adopt my behavior. You learn what to do. So this is who we have in our high priest in Yeshua. In the heavenly realm, in the heavenly sanctuary, he stands before the Father on our behalf and vouches for us. So yes, it's not literally an animal sacrifice. We're just making a meal before him. That's a that's something that is he likes to do because it brings peace. And if and if people you know start to read uh, amongst both of our audiences, and if they start to read Leviticus chapter one through seven, and they see the breakdown of what those sacrifices were for in these different occasions, they see that chapter one explains the part of the meal where the father has his portion. So when you actually go to a sacrifice in heaven, you're cooking a meal, and some of that meal goes to the father. Because it's these are real tangible beings. This is a real thing. Just like Jesus, after he was resurrected in his glorified body before he ascended to heaven, he's eating multiple meals with his disciples as he appears to them. Mm -hmm. So these are this is the I guess a big part of the question that you're asking, which is a great question because I know a lot of our viewers struggle with these ideas, um, comes from a very limited and poor understanding of not just the Old Testament Levitical process and what it really meant to to have a sacrifice before God, which is just having a, a fellowship meal, but also the, the idea of how real heaven is and how real the father is and the angels are and where they live. It's not a ghost world like Catholicism tries to make it out to be. It's not a Gnostic realm. It's a very tangible place. And that's where we're going to you know, be resurrected to live in the new Jerusalem in a real tangible eternal life. Mm -hmm. um, now breaking away from Hebrews chapter 10, um, I want to read John 1 17 and get your what you will you uh, interpret the scripture to me it, sure it says uh, for the law was given by Moses but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ what's your interpretation of that well for one that's a famous passage that we see an insertion by the translators okay so if you go into the the actual I'm gonna pull this on the screen for my viewers if you go into the actual um, Greek of that passage, the word but, it's not in there, okay? So it's just grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the, the word but, and that's why even in like parallel translations and certain Bible apps, you'll see that the word but's not in there. That but brings in most people's minds a substitution. You see what I'm saying? But that's not actually in the text. So yes, uh, we have the, you know, the the fullness of the instructions of God, specifically not just pertaining to moral behavior, but also for instructions for the tabernacle and all the, the priesthood, um, how to do the certain things within the tabernacle. Yes, that came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He is intended, uh, the, the storyline of Jesus Christ is intended that he fills the, the role of the priest that was needed to create us uh, eternal life. And to get us back to the garden, if you will, right, which is the New Jerusalem when it comes back down. And that's where um, he is the only one that the word grace meaning has favor, right? This is it's technically its definition. So that he brings, you know, the favor of God and the truth of 
you know, not just the, the behavior, the, the ultimate behavior, but the full storyline of how his priesthood redeems us from sin and death. So he does that through his priesthood, which is where the grace comes in, because he is literally gaining us favor with the Father, because he is mediating for us. Does that make any sense? I appreciate that answer, yeah. man. Um, there's another there's another passage I want to look at um, because I've heard this passage used by uh, groups like Hebrew Israelites um, to teach that Christians are going to be destroyed by God when Jesus Christ returns because they eat pork. It's Isaiah 66, verse 15 through 18. Okay. It says, uh, for behold, the Lord will come with fire and with yeah. his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination in the mouth shall be consumed, consumed together, saith the Lord. Um, what are your thoughts on on this passage here? Well, I think uh, <laughs> for one, I'm not a Hebrew Israelite. Um, they take things so far to context. It's their own separate denomination. They have their own ideas of a different Messiah. There's even some branches of them that don't even believe in, in Yeshua. They have a lot of issues, and there's actual really good ministries on that you can find on YouTube that deal with their arguments all the time. I know that Vocab Malone is a good one if you've ever seen his channel. But um, for them to take this passage, which is about the day of the Lord when he actually comes back to stop the wicked and everything, and say that Christians are going to be, because a Christian may still be eating pork, is going to be included in this particular concept, I think it it's a very poor understanding of the discipleship process that we have. And also of the the confusion and the bad doctrine that the Father knew was going to happen which is why he spoke about it through his prophets and also through Paul and through Jesus, because he knew that in the end times and last days that when, when he returns, there was going to be a great confusion amongst believers that, you know, people are really struggling with sound doctrine because there's all these different uh, doctrines that are being melded together and mixed together. But the good news is there's passages in other books um, that, or not in the American canon, but they're put in other canons throughout time and around the world, like the like the Ethiopian canon. You know, you have the book of First Enoch and the book of Jubilees, which talks about how believers in the end times will actually go back to keeping the law. So we have in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we have this idea that people are dispersed amongst the nations, that believers are dispersed amongst the nations. And then there is a time in verse 7 and 8 when we come back to when we when we call his commandments to remembrance, right? When we actually remember, oh, wait a minute, there's a practical thing that I do every day as a disciple of Christ, right? Or as, you know, who Christ obviously leads us to the Father, right? So it's the point into the behavior of the Father. So if I believe in the Father and the Son, and I want to be like them, then I need to do their behavior. And that is what he's talking, that is what's literally prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 30, that there will, there will come a time when all the believers who are scattered amongst all the nations call to mind, they remember, I need to be doing this behavior. And that's, it's a beautiful, beautiful passage, by the way, um, because the father knew that we would go through an era of after, you know, Israel's dispersed in 70 AD, then you go through what's called the time of the Gentiles. And, in, and at the end of that time of the Gentiles, and once that's fulfilled, when Yeshua returns, during that time of the Gentiles, there's a lot of bad doctrine. 
like that because it's there's not a solidified uh, place and you have the obf <laughs> obfuscation of the Catholic Church for 1700 years. I, I technically, even before its official formation at the tail end of the second century, you had a lot of that doctrine uh, attacking the Christians and trying to get them to to mingle, you know, what they what they were learning from the descendants of the disciples. And, you know, they were just already getting them off track, basically, if I could put it in modern vernacular. So you have um, Hebrew Israelites trying to take this passage far out of its context about the father destroying those who are destroying the earth, as it talks about in Revelation 11, 10 through 15, and ex exacting judgment on the wicked and the kings of the earth, those people who are dedicated towards doing occultic behavior that have literally aligned themselves with the uh, with you know with the harlot and the beast, and then when the beast physically shows up, they'll physically align themselves as well. But as far as just the average believer, like if you just become a believer and you're still learning the Bible and you're still eating pork, like that's you know the Father still loves you the moment that you believe and you want to actually you know go through your discipleship process just the same as He does as each step along the way that you get better and better at learning His behavior and practicing it. So I do believe that the you know, the, the descriptions of the Old Testament that they teach us that there's certain things that are food and certain things that are not food. And that was by design. This is how Noah, even before the flood, knew which animals were clean and were unclean, that there are certain things we can eat and certain things we're not supposed to eat. But there's a lot of confusion out there. And in fact, Russ, there's so much confusion. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter five, verses 19 and 20, where he says, and those who do the commandments and teach others to do the commandments will be considered greatest in the kingdom. But those who make null the commandments and teach others to do the same are least in the kingdom. You see what I mean? So there, that's a that's an extreme perspective of deceived believers. They're still in the kingdom, by the way. They're just deceived because he knew there would be many people claiming to be Christ. There'd be many false teachers coming about. He talked about it, right? And there's even false prophets that arise. He knew there was going to be an attack on sound doctrine. And, and so therefore, you're going to have a lot of people that do come to faith and belief in the Messiah, and they want to repent. They want to do it. They're just not getting good instruction. <laughs> so they're still chomping down on a ham sandwich on Christmas, not realizing that that food is not good for them, right? That it's, it's literally bad for your body internally. And the creator said that that animal is not meant to be food in general. And so, you know, I've, I've stopped eating bacon, you know, a few years ago, or, or I should say, um, you know, stopped eating pork and, uh, and other, and I used to love shrimp, brother, man. And sometimes I still like crave shrimp, but shrimp is considered like an unclean food. And so I've just tried to go according to the, the diet of Jesus, basically, because he would have only eat clean foods according to the law of God. Um, so therefore I'm sorry to, I'm trying to like give a contextual answer, brother. I apologize if it's a little lengthy, but brother, you're good. Therefore the Hebrew Israelites are taking that far to context and they, you know, I wouldn't listen to anything they say, to be honest with me, honest with anybody. Like if they're, they're the last people you should be listening to about the Torah. They're, they're as bad as Judaism. So I would just, you know, know that we're all going through a discipleship process as believers. So that means you have to start somewhere. You have to start practicing the behavior of Jesus at some point. And then you're going to get better at it over time. Now, I want to go to the book of Galatians. Um, there's a lot of controversy, and I'm sure that you deal with Galatians a lot on your channel. Yeah. In fact, but, I brought um, the T-shirt for it. This is, yes, I've read Galatians. And let me see. Let me check it out. Let me yeah, look over it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've got the T-shirt, brother. I knew I this was say. coming. Yeah. All right, man. I'm glad, I'm glad you knew this was coming. Um, so, Galatians. 
Galatians chapter 5, I want to start there, and we'll read verse uh, 1 through 4. Now, of course, you're, I know you're going to add context, which I, that's what I expect, um, but I do want to narrow down my question by pointing to this, these specific verses and um, trying to, try to articulate a question that's precise. So it says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Um, behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Um, what, what, is it, what is the yoke of bondage? That's the first question I have in verse number one, mm-hmm. where he says being entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Mm-hmm. And number two, um, what does he mean when he says that if you're circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing? Sure. Let's go to the definition of the yoke of bondage of, of the context of the book of Galatians. And for those listening, in case you're not familiar, if you haven't studied the book of Galatians, and if you don't know the, you know, the, the, the law of God very well, then you're going to, some of this language will skip over, over your comprehension, as well as if you don't understand who Paul was constantly battling, which is the circumcision party that comes from the Pharisees of Judaism. Okay. So this is what he talks about in chapter two, and I'm pulling up on screen uh, for folks to look at. So he talks about, um, I think it's in, actually it's in chapter one. I apologize. So here in chapter one, where he says in verse 13, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Notice there he didn't say for the law. He said for my ancestral traditions. This is what Yeshua reprimanded the Pharisees exactly for also. He said, but then God, who set me apart even from my mother's womb, called me through his grace and was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So he's just basically saying in his conversion, he left Judaism. He left it. He left it behind, right? And this is the same Acts 15 conversation that he's having with the people who were saying that they needed to be circumcised to be saved. And that's not that's not even true in Genesis. That's not even true in the Old Testament, right? So that's that's step one, okay, is that we have the conversation of who is he dealing with? This is the people that had come into the, the church of Galatia where he had made converts, and they're trying to bewitch, and this is not believers in, in Christ. This is the, from the party of circumcision of the Jews, those who are practicing Judaism. These are the people that came to Galatia, to his converts, to try to bewitch them means you don't trust in Jesus as your high priest who is teaching you to do the law of God, but instead you need to do what Judaism is telling you to do. You need to be circumcised. That way you can be saved. There's a total difference in an entryway into covenant. The Jews were teaching your entry into covenant is you got to do circumcision and to do the traditions that, that they were, that he talked about. He used to be zealous for. This is why there's so much static between the, the Jews and the Christian or and the believers of Christ and Christ himself. They were preaching a different religion. So, Russ, this would be the modern-day equivalent of you and I going to a church, like a Baptist church today, and then seeing someone coming in, like you you hadn't visited this church in two years, and you come back, and you see that they're all practicing Mormonism. 
right? It's completely contrary to scripture. A completely false prophet that's just that's debunked at just nearly every single level of qualifier of what a prophet is according to scripture. Yet for whatever reason, Mormon missionaries had come in behind you and had swayed the people of this Baptist church to believe in Mormon doctrine. They still believe in the idea of Jesus. They just don't believe who he's truly meant to be, right? They don't believe what's described of him. They believe all the different variances of Mormon doctrine, right? So this would be the same concept. He's dealing with people in his day that had a religion that they promoted that had a semblance of their of people of familiar terms, right? They called it the the law of Moses, right? They called it the traditions of their ancestors. So therefore, they took and swayed in the Jewish people to to believe that they needed to trust in these Pharisees as their religious leaders. But the Pharisees were, like Jesus says in Matthew 23, 4, they were putting on them a yoke that they could not bear. And that's what he's mentioning in Galatians 5, where he's saying that, that you've gone back to the yoke of oppression, the yoke of slavery, the yoke of bondage, which is Judaism. It's rules and regulations and, and, and all this. I don't know if you've ever seen the Talmud, brother, but it's massive. It's a whole bunch of nonsense. It's a whole bunch of extra rules added on to what God plainly stated to, to Moses and the other prophets as far as how you live righteously. And then here comes Pharisee Judaism over the years, and they start adding to it by the hundreds. And it is a yoke of bondage that nobody could bear. So this is why he calls it freedom in Christ. You're, you're actually because Christ preached the law and said no to Judaism. So if you're believing in Christ, you're going to do the law and you're going to say no to Judaism. And so this is what Paul was dealing with in this church in Galatia. He had his people mm -hmm. stolen from him. And so that means they're looking to another source for their redemption, i.e. their salvation. And it's truly not a salvation at all. So that's why he's bringing the juxtaposition to say, look, if you think circumcision is going to save you, which is the exact argument they were dealing with in Acts 15, 1, he's like, then Christ has no effect to you. And you, you may as well keep the whole law, meaning even then you still need a priest that's going to mediate for you. And who do you got? The, the priesthood in the days of Yeshua was even corrupt. They're the ones that crucified him. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So you've got nowhere to turn unless you turn to the Messiah who's been appointed for you. Does that help at all? Yeah, so um, I want to, yeah, I, I kind of get what you're saying. But when you look at the language there, it kind of, I wonder if you could just break down the wording there. Um, well, I, verse number two. Do you feel like I satisfied? Do you feel like a satisfactory oh, well, breakdown? I, no, one? I think I think yeah, absolutely, absolutely, okay. absolutely. Okay. Um, but where he, where he says that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. I get what right. you're what you're saying, but if you, uh, your explanation for that. But if you wouldn't mind, um, exp like honing in on that those phrase those two uh, phrases and or that one phrase and kind of breaking it down from the text. Uh, I apologize, man. I tried. I, I thought I did. Oh, man. No, 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 so, no. I don't mean yeah. I don't mean any offense by it. No, I don't what think I, you do. I, I just mean I that's what I was just like the last two statements I'd made. I was that's what I was trying to say was that the, the party of circumcision, the Jews that were they were pushing a different religion called Judaism. They were running around telling new Christian converts that you had to be circumcised to be saved. And that is them preaching a different version of salvation, whereas. Mm -hmm. The, the Old Testament and the New Testament with Yeshua as our high priest, you do not, your entryway in the covenant is not a physical snip of your member. It's not a physical outward circumcision. This is what Paul breaks down in Romans chapter 2, verse 25 to 28, that if you are circumcised and you're not doing the behavior of God, 
then your circumcision means nothing. But if you're not circumcised and you actually are doing the behavior of God, then it's equivalent to you being circumcised, right? Because the whole point of, I mean, I guess this also would take knowing the context of what circumcision really meant and what it was, which was just an outward sign that you were in covenant with God. How are you in covenant with God? Through faith and belief. And that's what he he explains in Galatians chapter four with the analogy, analogy, excuse me, the analogy of Abraham, because that's, like I said before, even in Genesis, Abraham wasn't asked to be circumcised until he was 99 years old. He had already been in faith and belief and following God for, for decades. So circumcision was not his entryway into covenant. It was faith and belief and act, you know, acting upon that faith and belief, right? But it wasn't physically the outward sign of circumcision. But the, the Jews, or the, 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 the practicing and promoting Judaism, they latched onto that one specific command and were making more of it than they should have. They're making a big deal about it. And so this is why he's using this language to say, look, if you receive circumcision, Christ has no benefit to you because that means you've been, you know, we're in chapter five again, Russ. So this is the problem mm-hmm. with the context. We got to remember it's chapters one through four, where he already set the stage for the conversation he's having. And I'm going to go to chapter six right after this to explain a little bit more about that. But he's already explained to the people, his congregants who have been fooled by the party of circumcision that you need to do this in order to be saved. And there, and that's not the definition of how we're saved according to the priesthood of Jesus. So that's where they're basically they're basically been bewitched, they've been fooled to forget and disbelieve what Paul explained to them about Jesus and to believe what the Pharisees have, are telling them. You see what I'm saying? So this mm-hmm. is why he says in chapter six, if you go down to um, if you go down to verses 13, he says, "For those who have been circumcised do not even keep the law themselves." but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in the flesh. You see what I'm saying? So this isn't about, mm-hmm. this isn't about his converts in Galatia, you know, doing a bad thing and keeping the law. The, the, the law cannot be a bad thing. It's literally the behavior of the father and the son. This is why he's saying those who are trying to get you circumcised, they don't even keep the law because again, they were, <laughs> they were Judaism. They're, they're just like Yeshua said, you, you guys do not keep the law of God. He says in Mark 7, 8, 8 through 11, and Matthew 23, the full chapter. So this is the problem is you have people that are against the Father and the Son and their behavior, and they're persecuting the disciples and any converts they make. And this is the problem that, that Paul's dealing with in Galatians. So in verse number four, where he says, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Right, because what is justification? It's where Yeshua raises you to eternal life, makes you right with God because you've got his behavior written on your heart, as we just read from Hebrews chapter 10. That's your his his the laws written on your heart and mind, right? Mm-hmm. So that way you now you only get that at the resurrection. Right now, Russ, you and I are still learning the law and practicing it. So we're not to that actual stage yet. But at the resurrection, we get the fulfillment of those passages, and that's when we're officially and finally justified by. Now, right now, we believe in faith that we're justified by. But He will do that for us, mm-hmm. right? But right now, we can still sin. We can still decide to reject God. We can still walk away from try, you know, the the faith and doing His behavior and start, you know, doing other be bad behaviors. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But once we get to the resurrection. We're given his heart and mind, and we'll never walk, be able to walk away from that. We're finally justified, which means to be made right with the Father. This is what Ezekiel, 
uh, 37 talks about and what Hebrews 10 was talking about, where it says that we will be at peace with God. So this is that moment that we're waiting for is Yeshua to do that for us, not doing it through, you know, physical circumcision. Does that make any sense? Right. Um, so I guess my next question um, would be... I guess I should, real quick, I need to add the, a point of context of the first century uh, Judaism. Absolutely. Go ahead, man. They, they thought that literally, according to their schools of thought, with what the rabbis were teaching was that if you were circumcised, you were in like Flynn. Like you didn't need, you could do anything you want after that point because you've been circumcised. So therefore you are now saved. That's, it was a part of their bad teaching that they also believed if you were blood born Israelite, you're, you're saved just because you're, you're probably circumcised on the eighth day and that you're a part of Israel. So therefore you're saved. You didn't have to actually do the commandments of God. This was the bad twisted teaching that they, the Yeshua and the disciples were facing in the first century. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, mean, I appreciate that answer. Yeah. My next question would be, um, do you believe that the law can make a person righteous? Well, that's literally the definition of righteous, and I'll go to it for my viewers that might be watching and following along. So if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and this is going to be in verse 25, it says, It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments or all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. And if you go back up and you see what, what's he being commanded, it's all these statutes, right? And it's the, the, you know, again, the context of going back through the previous chapters to see that's what's been commanded. Um, so yes, this is why you have uh, even New Testament characters that are considered righteous. And whenever you see that word righteous, like in Genesis chapter six, verse eight, where it says Noah was righteous, that's because he was doing the behavior of God. And that's, uh, and that's again, that's why he knew how to build an altar in Genesis nine. That's why he knew, um, what clean and unclean was he, they had already, it had been passed down from Adam, uh, from Adam to all the other patriarchs down through. That's a lot of people don't realize because they're not familiar with um, old Testament history and they're not familiar with the Torah. They don't realize that Genesis is following the priesthood amongst the patriarchs that are highlighted in the story. So if, but if we go real quick and we go to um, just a short little passage here, this is in Luke chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. It says, In the days of King Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Many of you guys recognize this. This is the parents of John the Baptist. So is it any wonder Later in the Gospels, when Jesus sees, I think it's in John chapter 3, or John, excuse me, John, John chapter 1, when Jesus goes to get baptized from John the Baptist, and he says that here, John the Baptist is the greatest among the prophets. To be great, by the definitions of the Old Testament prophets, means someone that did the commandments of God. And John the Baptist had parents who are being commended by Luke in the New Testament being called righteous in the sight of God because they did blamelessly all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, Russ, just so your, your um, listeners are, are not mistaken, Liz, you know, Zacharias and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, they cannot resurrect themselves. They cannot save themselves. They are considered blameless, meaning they're doing faithfully and wholeheartedly the commandments and requirements of the Lord, and they're considered righteous. But that, that doesn't mean that they're saving themselves. <laughs> 
this story still has a component piece that they cannot fulfill, and that's the priesthood that Yeshua fulfills. That's why he was appointed from before time began, according to the book of First Enoch. He was appointed in that position, and that's why we have that reiterated throughout the Old Testament prophets, that Yeshua was the one that was going to be put in that position of the priesthood, and that included the moment where he could raise you from the dead because he's the one that evaluated your life while you're alive to know if you're if you want even to have eternal life because if you if you get to the point of him raising you from the dead and having eternal life you're going to get the promise of the covenant as we read from Hebrews 10 and Jeremiah 31 which is you're going to get the laws of God <laughs> written on your heart to do them so if you don't want to do them that's what we're determining by our whole life right we're showing the father whether we want to do those forever or not right and so a lot of people in modern churches they're taught to love the Lord their God, their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to be like Jesus, they just don't get that really defined for them. So they want to do that. And that's why I believe those people, 100% Yeshua is going to resurrect from the dead and give them eternal life, because he knows, even in their their you know bad explanation from their religious leaders about what that truly means, he sees their heart, and he knows they truly want to do that. They want to do the behavior of Jesus. So he's going to give them that and give them eternal life. That's part of the covenant. But those who don't, He's not going to give them that. Does that make any sense? So yeah, that's man. where you, you get this term righteous is designed uh, defined for us in the scriptures. And we're considered righteous in Christ because we're believing him to raise us for the dead and we're discipling after him, right? What, how, what would that even mean? It means we're doing his behavior. What's his behavior? He, he did the commandments of God. I appreciate you um, taking time to explain that now. Um, Based on that, if if I were if I were to take what you're saying and what you've showed in the scripture and your interpretation be uh, the truth and accurate, and the law can make a person righteous, when you come to verses, well, I, well how are we defining righteous? Though that's what I hope that right. We, so we got. right, and maybe maybe right. maybe this maybe this question will help um, when you expound on this on these two verses will clear clear the air a little bit. Sure. So go, when you come across verses, uh, I want to read two verses. In particular, and I want you to explain when you come across verses like these, how how are we to walk away believing that the, the law can make us righteous? Um, Galatians two twenty one, and Galatians three twenty one. It says in, in two twenty one, he says, "I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain." In Galatians three twenty one, says, "Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid." For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. Right. So we'll start with the first one, chapter 2, verse 21. As as you always know, there's more than just that verse, right? So this is how we get into troubles. We've, we've cherry-picked verses. So we don't want to we want to look at some of the surrounding context. And thankfully, with this particular topic, with what Paul's talking about here, we have more context than just Galatians 2. We actually have Romans chapter 10, and I'll go there in just a minute. So it says in verse 19, he says, for though through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. <laughs> it's very, seems confusing, right? It's a little different. That's why I said, if you, how we always tell people to keep in context, if you don't know the old Testament, Paul's just going to confuse you, right? So you have to understand that where he's getting these words, these definitions and kind of, you know, who's Paul even really talking to and what's he talking about in the book of Galatians. It's about him addressing an overall concept of circumcision whether it saves you or not. And that's what he was having to correct the bad doctrine that had come against his congregates in Galatia. So he says, then on verse, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. 
and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So, Russ, I think you and I would agree that Paul was not crucified with Christ literally, right? Right. Okay, so we know that he's not speaking literally in all accounts whenever he talks, that there's deeper meanings to what he's saying. And many times he uses metaphors, similes, and analogies when he talks. And there's another literary term that he often uses that is called prolepsis. And it's a, a lot of people may not be familiar with it, but it's just another literary construct like we use a metaphor or an analogy. And it means it's literally like Hebrews 1. It's the definition of faith speech. And it is um, a literary term that means you speak about something so confidently because it's going to happen. You speak about it as if it's already happened. And this is what we see the epistle writers doing a lot when they speak about Jesus accomplishing salvation for them because they know that he's already ascended to the Father and they know the rest of the story, which is the next step in the process since he's already ascended to the heavenly tabernacle and is doing his priesthood job, that he's he's going to resurrect them on the day of the Lord next. And that's the righteousness that he's referring to in this particular passage in verse 21, right? Because it says, I do not nullify the grace of God. What is the grace of God in relationship to the son of God who would, why he says later that Christ died needlessly. What we talked about before, the grace of God is the favor that is extended to us through the priesthood of his son, that we may boldly, come before the throne of grace, right? It's that favor that's given to us. We didn't have that before we had Yeshua. So it was, this is why we needed Yeshua hundred percent. And this is why it says the righteousness comes through the law. That's what I said before with John, with Luke chapter one, verse four through seven, John, the Baptist parents were doing the law. They were considered righteous in the sight of God, but they were not given eternal righteousness. It, they were not given their internal corrupted body with the laws of God written on their heart yet because the resurrection hasn't happened yet. They were considered righteous just like Noah was just like Abraham was, just like Ezekiel and Hezekiah were, but they were not technically forever righteous yet. They were still going to have to die and need to be resurrected. And there's only one person assigned to accomplish that for them, and that's the Messiah. So this is why if you if we go to um, Romans chapter 10 real quick, we can see the parallel that Paul is talking about to the Romans, the same concept. And he says in um, the first five verses, he says, brother, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is this their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So is he ta- what's he talking about there? Like, which righteousness are we referring to at that point? It's the actual righteousness of the law of God, like we read from Deuteronomy 6.25. He then expounds upon that context in verse 4 by saying Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who, who believes. Now, I think you've encountered this before, Russell. You know that this, this Greek passage here in verse 4 is not talking that the law is done away with, but it's Christ is the, the end, meaning the goal, the principal the, aim. The fulfillment? No, it means the goal, the principal aim. In the Greek, that word. And right. that, wouldn't that, that wouldn't that word uh, fulfillment all uh, accurately describe that too? Well, no, because it's the the goal. The, if you because so many people take the word fulfillment and they actually think it means that it's fulfilled to being done away with, as far as like there was a qualifier that needed to be achieved, and once that's achieved, it's fulfilled and doesn't have to be achieved anymore. That's not what this Greek word is saying. It's the word. I'll actually pull it up on the screen for my viewers real quick. It's the word. Um, I've done an entire video on this actually. But it is in the Greek. I'm sorry, one second. I just messed up. 
my uh, search. Um, use ten four. All right. So it is this word um, telos, and it's uh, an end, event, or issue, or principal aim, or end, or a purpose. You see what I'm saying? Or even a tax, in other words. But it's the idea that it's it's the principal aim or the purpose. So let's go back to the, the law or the actual passage real quick. For Christ is the principal aim or the purpose of the law for righteousness, meaning Christ was perfect because he did the law. Therefore, he's considered righteous. I think you and I both would agree that Christ was righteous because he didn't sin. He didn't transgress the law at any point. Is that correct? Mm, absolutely. Okay. So therefore, that's what he's trying to explain to them. This is verse three. This is, he, you know, they, he, okay, let's go back to verse two. He says, he testifies about them. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, meaning they wanted to know God, but not doing it in accordance to how it's explained through the prophets, which is to do the commandments. Therefore, you get righteousness. Because he says in verse three, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, the further in context of this is in chapter nine, he's talking about his own people. He's talking about those who are cut out of the branch, right? The, the people of Israel that rejected Christ and rejected the law, those in his former way of life in Judaism, because they had not sought to establish the righteousness of God in their lives by doing the commandments of God. So Russ, this is why we have Jesus and John the Baptist walking around in the gospels saying for people to repent. The people of their day that they were speaking to, they were not doing the law of God. They had been, they had been bewitched by Judaism. They had been taught other things. And so that's why you have Jesus and John the Baptist going and telling people to repent and teaching them the actual law of God and the gospel of the kingdom. And because that's it's all one message, right? So this is where verse four, he's he's trying to explain from the previous context of chapter nine. That the people that have rejected Christ, they also reject, you know, they're keeping Judaism, they're not keeping the actual law of God. And so therefore they've rejected the righteousness that that God offered to them through you know Deuteronomy 6:25. He says, But Christ is the end or the principal aim or the goal of the law for righteousness, meaning he's the perfect example of how to do it for everyone who believes. That's why we model our behavior after the Messiah. That's our that's our job as disciples. That's how we sanctify ourselves in an ongoing process. And then verse five, he says, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by that righteousness. And that's in Leviticus 18, five. And he's talking about eternal life here. See what I'm saying? That's so mm -hmm. Moses writes that a man who practices righteousness shall live by that righteousness. What kind of living are we talking about? It's not, I mean, you're already practicing it, which means you're already doing it as your lifestyle. This is exactly what Leviticus 18 was talking about. It's talking about eternal life. This is the living that you get, and that you only get that eternal life through Jesus. So this is where he's still talking about Jesus, and that's what he kind of expounds by repeating Deuteronomy chapter 30 in verse 6, and he goes on to say that, you know, it's, you know, who uh, the righteousness that's based on faith speaks as follows, and he quotes Deuteronomy 30, because that's only Christ that can accomplish the righteousness based on faith, meaning the righteousness you receive at the resurrection you have to wait in faith for that to happen, that Yeshua will go through the motions properly and fulfill that process to raise you from the dead at the appointed time, because that's what's been prophesied about him. So that takes faith. That's not something that you can secure for yourself. You need him to do that for you. So there's 
there's two definitions of righteousness that can trip us up when we're reading Paul's letters if we don't know the Old Testament. Hmm. One is the actual literal practical applications that you're practicing the behavior of Yahweh, also the behavior of Jesus, by doing the commandments. That's one That's one definition of righteousness that we see used in context. But, but what God is promising in Leviticus and Paul's repeating in Romans 10, 5, is that if you do that, he promises you'll live. Even though you're going to die, it's appointed man to die once, but and then the judgment. Well, what does the judgment lead to? You're either resurrected or you're thrown in the lake of fire, right? So, so did Christ come to just demonstrate how we ought to live in order to gain eternal life, or did he gain eternal life for us on our behalf? Uh, he he showed us how to live by his behavior, uh, walking around doing doing the behavior of the Father perfectly. But he gives us eternal life through his priesthood at the resurrection. Is, he, is eternal life a free gift? Yeah, we can't buy it. He has to give mm-hmm. it to us. It's his. He's the judge, as he talks about in Roman, uh, John chapter five. He says all judgment was given to the Son. The Father doesn't judge anybody. All judgment mm-hmm. is given to the Son, so that. Yes, he's the one that gives us eternal life um, by raising us from the dead. So my question would be then is I, w- I just want everybody listening to be clear on your position here. Sure. Um, what must a what must a person do in order to be saved? Uh, repent and believe. Yeah, I mean, and inherently in that is that you're changing your behavior to adopt to the behavior of Jesus, and that you're going to believe that He's literally mediating atonement for you in the Father's sanctuary above. This is what we went over in Hebrews. And also First Timothy and First John one nine, and that he's going to raise you from the dead and eternal life. I mean, that's the storyline. You got to believe that he is the Messiah, lest you die in your sins, right? So, what's the storyline of the Messiah? Well, that he's going to do these processes that are explained about him to raise us to get to the point where he raises us to eternal life at the appropriate time, which is the day of the Lord. So mm-hmm. this is, I mean, so as in a, in a bumper sticker phrase, it's it's what we've always heard, right? To repent and believe, right? You need to change your behavior, stop doing wickedness, start doing the behavior of Jesus. Well, then when you start to dig into what does that actually look like? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. That's when you start to have to come to a decision of what did actually Jesus believe and abide in? So would, what, would I would I be correct in um, in saying that you, what you what you're basically what you're telling me is that not only do I have to believe in Jesus to be saved, but I also have to start living according to the law to be saved. Is that accurate? Well, let me ask you this, Russ. When you came to faith and belief in Jesus, did you go out and start killing people? Well, when um, my story is a little bit different because I got saved at a really young age. So um, when I got saved, I was four years old. And so from that point on, I didn't, I didn't become a better person. As a matter of fact, when I when I the, the older I grew, the the more evil and wicked I had become. Um, until there was a point in my life later on where I had decided uh, to go back to uh, striving to live for Jesus Christ. Not because I was trying to gain eternal life by any means, but because uh, I had eternal life, and it was given to me as a free gift because of His love and that love. So you live in your eternal life right now? No, I have eternal life. You mean you have it coming? No, I I have eternal life. You mean, my, are you my, living my your spirit, eternal life right now? My spirit is, yeah. Your spirit mm-hmm. is. Okay. Yeah. So, so like the part of me that's eternal is the part of me that's born of God, the spirit. Um, the part right. of me that right. So and, you're and, saying so you're my not flesh gonna... is not eternal. Um, not it's not I don't have an eternal body yet, but I do have an yeah. eternal spirit. So in that sense, yeah. Okay, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Okay. 
But what you just described to me is still repentance, brother. You, you said you, you adopted evil behavior and then you had to stop doing that so that you felt, you know, you may not have the motivation of eternal life, but you felt that that's how you honored your faith in Jesus. Is that right. correct? My, yeah, my, my motive was that I was forgiven of my sins and okay. he died on the cross for my sins and rose again from the dead. That was my motive, not, okay, so, not because I'm trying to gain anything for myself, but my motive was I already have been given the free gift of, of eternal life the moment I believed when I was four years old. And because of that and because of his unconditional love and his grace and his mercy, that is what compels me to live for him. At some point it did. Right. When, but, I, when I began to reflect on it. Right. But at, yeah. but for a period of time, we don't have to go into how many years, but at, for a period of time, it did not motivate you to live for him. Well, it was on and off. What, what my point in saying all that was at four years old, the worst thing that I've ever did at that point was maybe take uh, a piece of candy from my brother yeah. that didn't belong to me. But well, you get what I'm saying? So as I as I got older and was presented with new circumstances sure. and situations, now I was always saved and I was always convicted about my sin. Okay. You know what I mean? Okay. But my, 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 what my point is, is that at four years old, you don't have that long or that serious of a rap sheet. You, you don't have, <laughs> yeah, that for that too. Right. But you also don't have the knowledge of God, mm -hmm. right? You don't have what first Peter chapter one talks about that you're growing in the knowledge of God to understand what right behavior is. That's because you, no one's taught you yet. Right. Or you haven't searched out yourself. So you're, I mean, we're kind of dealing with a very extreme example of, of a child coming to faith. I mean, I, I technically said the sinner's prayer at seven, but then I don't that, like I told you at the introduction of our conversation today, I don't feel I was truly saved as far as a true repentant heart change where I was going to try to make a difference of, of behavior in my life until I was 17. Was I still saved between seven and 17? Very possibly. But for me, it was a, a situation of, I had no clue what I was doing, <laughs> you know? And I was just, I was, uh, I given lip service to the idea thinking that's what I needed to do. Now the father may have, give me the positive spirit. And that could be why I, I did or didn't do certain things between seven and 17. Um, praise God for that. If, if that's the, the case, but as far as me making an active conscience change of behavior, that didn't happen to a certain point in my life. And that's, that's all I'm getting at brother is that, you know, it, it's not, again, this is why at the beginning of our conversation, I was, I was trying to make sure we're defining properly the idea of what does it mean to do the law? I don't know if you realize this or not, but you already do the law. You, you try right. to emulate, you try to be adopt the behavior of Jesus in your life and your character and your disposition. You are doing the law. This is the big semantic confusion that this conversation really confuses people. It's unnecessary. If people don't realize people sitting in the, in the average church, like a you know Methodist Baptist Presbyterian church that they want to be like Jesus. They want to be a good person, do what's right and love their neighbors and love yourself. They're not kidnapping people. They're not committing mass ritualistic murder at pagan temples. They're not drinking blood they're, you know what I'm saying? They're not worshiping other gods. They're doing the law of God. Right. You see what I'm saying? But yeah, at the some same time, some extent, right. That's what right. Getting there, there's a mixture of confusion at the same time where they may be sitting in a church where the preachers tell them the law of God's done away with, mm -hmm. but yet they're literally being told in the next breath to do behavior. That's in alignment with the law of God. Mm -hmm. you, I'm sure you already know that Leviticus 1918, love the Lord, your God, you love yourself is not part of the 10 commandments but yet right, we're told yeah. that almost every sunday right and now and yeah and that my i guess my whole my whole point was like uh, i think the point i think if i understand you correctly 
uh, the point at which we differ is I think where we're getting into um, I I my heart change is because I'm saved, not I'm saved because of my heart change. So I think we we that's where I think we kind of disagree because I don't believe that a change uh, that a change of route is what saves me uh, because I, well, my again, understanding I of to... the word repentance uh, is mm -hmm. a change is to change your mind. And when he when he when he when you look at the gospel command, it's to repent and believe the gospel is to change your mind and believe in Jesus to go from unbelief to belief to go from rejection to acceptance of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Of and course, so of course, that's what I believe repent that. means, not like a life change, not like a clean up my act. Well, I get my I act would, together and yeah, then believe. I mean, okay. But I would suggest that um, when you have the extra time, study out the actual definition in the old and new Testament for the word repent. Um, it does mean a change of behavior because well, in got, some places I agree. Now I, I do agree in some places that well, because there's different words for repent. Just because we, we see the English word repent doesn't mean that all these different words are the same word with the same meaning. Right. Um, there are different words for repent. And I think that's where we need to be careful, you know. Well, I, I want to be clear, though, because uh, I think you framed me earlier, Stan, in, in a point that you think we disagree. I think you framed me poorly. I, I'm not sure I agree with your framing of what you think, I believe. So I, I think it's you know, when a person comes to faith in, in the Messiah, they believe that they're created. They believe that the, the creator has a son who sent him as Jesus Christ. Uh, they believe if they believe in the Messiah, that they will get eternal life someday. I mean, we're, we're talking John 3.16. It's the very most basic premise of our belief set in Christianity. And that with that concept, I mean, you have to, you, I mean, it is a fundamental idea that your behavior is called discipleship, where you change your behavior over time to adopt it to Jesus's behavior. And if you're not doing that, do you have the fruit of the Spirit? Are you showing works unto repentance, as Hebrews talks about and First uh, Timothy talks about? Like, this is, you know, if you don't, like, what are you saying? What are you, or you're, you're literally becoming the Pharisees, where you say you believe in God, but you're not doing the behavior of God. Just like mm. John reprimanded them in John chapter 8, where he says, oh, you think if Abraham was truly your father, you would do the deeds of Abraham. And Abraham did the deeds of the behavior of the creator. He did the commandments. You know what I'm saying? So there has to be a some sort of some sort of uh, distinction there, right? When a person comes to faith and belief in Christ, that they have to have a moment of changing their behavior from stop doing destructive bad behavior and start doing the behavior of Jesus, which once we start to define what that is, we realize it's literally keeping the commandments, which is mm -hmm. what said for us to do in Matthew 19, 16, and 17. And, and furthermore, I'll just go there real quick so that um, both of our listeners and, and everyone watching on YouTube uh, will be able to kind of know what I'm talking about. I've mentioned this first a few times, but it's very blatant, brother. It's very, very specific in what he says. And it's verse, it starts in verse 16 of Matthew 19. It says, and someone came to him and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Mm -hmm. Now, this is from our Messiah. Right. And I think me and you've discussed this passage before. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I think our interpretations uh, vary a little bit. But because then the guy goes, he goes on to list off a couple of them, right? Don't murder, mm -hmm. don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness on your father and mother, love your neighbors yourself. And then the guy's like, well, I've done these. What am I still lacking? 
And then Jesus gives him another one from Deuteronomy 15. That's mm -hmm. what he was lacking. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it's up to you. I, I don't know exactly where the, where the interpretation difference would be. He literally tells him if he answers this question, how do I get eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. Mm -hmm. So that's, that is you telling the judge, this guy walks up to the judge, right? The Messiah right. be the judge of all mankind. And he says, how do I get eternal life? Since the judge is the one that determines eternal life for people, then mm -hmm. to keep the commandments. Now, now, now this is, and I'm kind of going off script here because this is not, not normally how I do my podcast. As you know, <laughs> I normally don't chime in, but so I'm, I'm my, you feel free to put all this on, on your YouTube channel. It's fine. All but right. as far as when, when I put my interview on, um, it's just going to be my questions and your answers. That's okay. Um, because okay. you, you know, because I'm my the the way my podcast is set up is I try to be present an unbiased uh, uh, demonstration. Okay, this is what this guy believes. This is what this guy believes. So, anyway, yeah. yeah. Um, the way uh, the way that I see this passage is uh, when you when you first look at verse sixteen, he says, "Good master," so he calls Jesus good, and he says, "What good thing shall I do?" that I may have eternal life. So his, his question, he's, he's coming in with a two, with a two faulty premises. Number one, he's calling Jesus Christ whom, who, who um, he's calling Jesus Christ. Good. And then he says, what good thing shall I do that I may have, have eternal life. And so he is assuming that he has to, to do something good in order to have eternal life. And Jesus asked a question. He said, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. That is God. And so Jesus is correcting this man because he comes in and he calls Jesus good. And Jesus asked the question, why are you calling me good? But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And so this guy begins to try to convince himself that he has kept the commandments. And so Jesus says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And, you know, and then his answer is that he's kept this from, from a youth up. He says, I, I mean, I've always kept these laws. I've always honored my mother and father, which, you know, I don't know necessarily if I believe that. But he says, you know, I've done all of these things. I've, I've kept your law perfectly since I was a kid. He goes, what, what do I lack yet? And Jesus said unto him, if thou will be perfect, then go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. So the, the, here's the kicker. What, we, what a lot of people don't realize is Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then this man says that he's done that. And Jesus proves to him that he did not, because if he did, he would what? Have given to his poor neighbor. And given to those who didn't have, instead of hoarding up all these riches and stuff to himself, okay. and and so what's your repeat? Deuteronomy fifteen. Mm -hmm. It's an actual Torah instruction. Absolutely, and I and I completely agree with that. What what I'm saying is Jesus is not teaching here that you, in order to have eternal life, you must walk perfectly in the commandments, or you need to keep the commandments to gain eternal life. What Jesus is trying to teach and demonstrate to this man is that he has not and cannot keep the commandments perfectly because there's only one person that is good, and that is God. Okay, why, why would he tell him, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments? 
Because he, the the person, his question was, what must I do? And if it's based on you, then you have to be perfect. What? No, I mean, like. That's what he's telling. That's what that's what he's saying. The, the guy asked, what well, must I have, do? He doesn't say I have to be perfect. He just says well, you need to keep the commandments. Part of the commandments is that you have a priesthood that mediates for you when you fail. That's the point of Yeshua becoming a high priest. We all are going to fail. That's Romans three twenty three. It's it's destined. We all we we all will sin. Um, this First John three, who says without sin is a liar. Or First John one, who says without sin is a liar. Um, this is this is the general premise of the Old Testament. He God gave them a priesthood because they would fail. That's part of the commandments. Is the priesthood is a part of that? So right. So we don't we don't we we try to keep the commandments, but we don't perfectly and right. actually keep the yeah. commandments the, Al the almighty the creator when he gave the commandments to the patriarchs in the old testament he did not expect them to be perfect he well knew he knew they couldn't be right right yeah so that's that's maybe a false dichotomy or maybe just a, a starting place that's a little askew but that is one of the bad arguments that i've heard that comes against the idea of keeping the commandments from a lot of uh churches that you know they 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 that's just one of the bad arguments, I guess, I've heard is they they assume you got to be perfect if you're going to keep the commandments. But that just shows them not understanding the Old Testament, that, that you were never expected to be perfect. That's why you have a priesthood. You would there would be no reason for the priesthood if you were expected to be perfect. Um, and if and if messing up one time disqualified you for re repentance and atonement and redemption, then you wouldn't need a priesthood either. Right. So. The whole premise from the moment Adam sinned and knowing that everyone begot after him would, would enter into life that where they were going to sin, that you, the father set up a priesthood. There is there is always a priesthood that's been there to mediate. For, this is why in Genesis 14, Abraham goes to a priest, the Melchizedek in Genesis 14. There has always been a priesthood. So this is something I think that is sorely lacking in the the, the common mainstream congregant at churches and them understanding uh, the history of the Old Testament and some of the prophets and why Jesus is making some of these statements, because Jesus is not going to be giving different instructions for this guy to enter into eternal life compared to the rest of us. Okay. You see what I'm saying? His, his, so his, I, I really think that Jesus is trying to teach him because Jesus doesn't even mention the priesthood here. Jesus doesn't well, even mention all the commandments. Of course He doesn't not. even mention all the commandments. Well, of course not. I mean, that would take the entire, like you would be sitting there reciting books. So of course not. He's going over some basics with him. The guy says, I've done all these for my, you, you know, and they, what am I still lacking? And then he hits him straight to the heart. He cuts him to the quick because he knows, you know, Jesus could perceive what was in people. Uh, yeah. Gifts of the spirit, uh -huh. right? Yeah. So he looked into his heart and knew what he was lacking. So he's uh -huh. giving a straightforward answer. And what he was lacking was another Torah command, which is to be generous to your fellow brethren around you who doesn't have as much as you do. And therefore, to share with some of them. And and by the way, that the, I'm not sure which version you read, but the King James and many other versions does not say go sell all that you have. So because that's also not the Torah command. You don't. It's not communism. You don't mm -hmm. go sell everything you have. You take out of your abundance. It's a right. part higher than your first fruits, and that is what's distributed to the poor, the widows, and the orphans mm -hmm. according, to, according to the law of God. So this is where. It, just like in John 14, when Jesus says, if you love me, keep the commandments, right? So it's the mm -hmm. same concept, just like in Luke 10, where the lawyer comes up to him and asks him, 
you know, what should I do to her eternal life? And he starts listing off the commandments, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? This is and so let's real quick, I've got this on screen for my viewers. And if your listeners are still following, we go to Revelation 22. We'll see some other words from Jesus in verse 14. And if we go to, uh, we can go to a variety of translations, but I know that you like the King James. So let's say, blessed are those that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter into the gates into the city. And that's the New Jerusalem, obviously. Mm -hmm. So we have Yeshua walking around telling people to, to, to do his behavior, right? This is why he would have disciples. A disciple, you know, patterns their life after their, their master. Um so you, you have to do the behavior of your master. That's the, the idea. And if Jesus is someone that we're discipling after, we would do his behavior. He faithfully did the commandments. He tells us both in his life and also after he's resurrected again, um, through a vision to John uh, in the book of Revelation, that we'll be blessed if we do the commandments and we'll have the right to each of the tree of life. Again, this is why I was trying to explain the priesthood earlier, Russ. We're not, you're, it's not something that you're doing to literally earn or like, you know, you're not securing your salvation on your own. You, well, can't, you can't, you can't, right. you have to have him to do that for you, to raise you from the dead. And to, he's recreated a redemption for you through his priesthood. Mm -hmm. But it, we do have a responsibility in this situation. And that is for us to adopt the father and son's behavior so that they at least see that we want it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise we're considered wicked according to the definitions of the Bible and, and unrighteous. And therefore we're not going to get eternal life. We're thrown in the lake of fire. So that's a big difference in the heart, the disposition there of the semantics that we mm -hmm. see so many people struggling with in this conversation, thinking the moment that you say, do the behavior of Jesus, they're like, yeah, we want to be like Jesus, right? Give me the bracelet. What would Jesus do? But then the moment you start defining that phrase and you start saying, well, Jesus kept the commandments of God. You ready to do those? And people are like, oh, that's, you know, that's, that's a, a Judaizing. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. You don't even know what Judaizing is. <laughs> Judaizing didn't do the commandments. They did their own thing. They did something different according to their traditions. Right. And so you get a lot of bad arguments from misconceptions and misunderstandings. And that's what we hear at Kingdom of Context. We strive really hard to bring the context and the definitions of the words to, to, the, to the scriptures to help people gain a better comprehension if possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, like I said, man, I think maybe that uh, as far as the process of, uh, of being saved, I think that that's where we, we, we kind of differ on, you know what I mean? Like I, I believe, cause I believe that um, it's, it's a matter of that. I believe that in order to be saved and have eternal life, it's by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ Okay, what and is, what is the that? death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, that he died on the cross for your sins, that you believe like he told Nicodemus. Right. So yeah, I believe that. So what's and, well, the difference is I don't add works into the equation and say that um, that in order for me to keep my eternal life or in order for me to um, to, I guess, continue to maintain it or whatever, that you have to keep living in a certain way. I believe that once a person is born again, that the part of them that's born of the spirit of God is a new creature and it's made in righteousness, born again of the incorruptible seed. Um, that Peter talks about. So I believe that that part of you that I believe that that part of you is going to desire to do the things that are righteous and holy and good. Right. And but the, your flesh, however, will not. Well, it, it's going to desire the things that are unholy, that are unrighteous, right? And okay. so you're going to have you're going to have this, like Galatians says, that your flesh is contrary to your spirit, and your spirit's contrary to the flesh. That you can't do the things that you would, and right. so that's why we fail. 
Russ, do you mean Romans well, 7? Well, Romans 7 says the same thing, but it's also in Galatians 5. But um, and, and so he's yeah, he says it again in Galatians 5. But the the so thing I, is the term works from the book of Galatians. No, I'm just you know, what I mean by works is righteous deeds. Okay, so when I say the word works, that's what I mean. So I don't believe that any any righteous acts, any righteous deeds, like loving your neighbor and loving God and walking in those things, is what secures your eternal life or maintains your eternal life. Well, I I believe that your spirit. Okay, and this is where this is where I want to kind of get to why I believe what I believe. I believe that your spirit, the part of you that's born of God, is born of incorruptible seed and that that part of you cannot sin, that it's perfect, it's holy and it's righteous. So when you walk in that nature, that you're going to walk in the commandments in in the laws of God and that you're going to obey him perfectly and everything when you're walking in that new nature. But I don't believe that that new nature is somehow accumulated over time or gained through your own effort or merits or through your own obedience. I believe that it's given to a person the moment they believe that Jesus died on the cross from their sins and rose again from the dead. Respectfully, let me slow you down a little bit, brother. Um, You're saying your new nature in Christ the part of me that's born of God, yes. Right. Allows you to now walk in, in be, what is called righteous behavior. I believe that that new nature you only... You don't, you don't have to learn it, that you're just doing it now. Yeah, I believe... Well, yeah, I believe that the part of you that's born of God, when you when you are... What I'm saying is... So wait a minute. Is when, you, when you walk... I'm going to repeat exactly what I said. When you walk... In the new nature, when you walk in the spirit, right, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Sure. You're going to walk in a way that's perfectly pleasing to God when you're walking in the spirit. Okay, I agree with you. And let's look at how Paul defines that because that's where you're getting that terminology. And it's in Romans chapter 8, right? So verse 5 through 8, for those who are walking according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are walking according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it's not even able to do so, but in those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay. However, you are not in the flesh. That's right. Amen. Mm-hmm. But in the spirit, if there's a qualifier, if yeah. indeed, the spirit of God dwells in you, but if That's anyone right. does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So, but wait, the spirit, those who walk in the spirit, this is what I just read, brother. Those who walk in the spirit set their mind on life and peace because the mindset in the flesh, which is opposite of walking in the spirit, they're hostile toward God and does not subject itself to the law of God. This mm-hmm. is being, if you're walking in the flesh, you're not subjecting yourself to the law of God. If you're walking mm-hmm. in the flesh, you're not subjecting yourself in the law of God. This would mean if you're walking in the spirit, you are subjecting yourself to the law of God. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. <laughs> but what I think what we disagree on is what is required for eternal life. You get, I think yeah, that's what that's I'm saying. That's what I'm trying to draw out. You're trying to do the job of Jesus, though. Like, we're not the judge. We're not the one that determines how much of your obedience in your life, he's going to deem you for resurrection, right? That's, that's not our job. That's his. And I'm thankful for that because he's the only one that can 
you know, know the thoughts and intents of the heart and judge us fairly and judge us, you know, uh, righteously. And so I, we don't get to do that. Right. So he he's the one that does that. But at the same time, for for us, I, I would struggle with your definition of saying that a person could come to faith and belief in Jesus, just like you said in your own personal testimony, when you're four o'clock, when you're four years old and you feel like you were given the spirit of God because you said a prayer that you believed in Jesus. Well, yet, that's that's not that, what I said. That's not what I said. Oh. I said I believed the gospel. I didn't say it was because I said a prayer. You, as you said, that's when you were saved, right? Right. And now I'll agree with that, but I don't believe that I'm saved because I said the sinner's prayer. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm, well uh, thanks for clarifying. So, but what you are saying though, is that the moment that you believe in faith in Jesus, you don't have to do any kind of physical actions to show that. Is that what you're saying? I don't, what, what I'm saying is, is that, that you will do those things if you walk in the spirit and it will demonstrate that. Okay. What I what I'm not saying is is that doing those things gain me eternal life. That's what I will not say, and that's why that's where I would say I disagree. With right. You. Because the, well, no, I don't. Again, I, I think it's really a semantic issue because I'm I've emphatically said throughout this that we cannot give ourselves eternal life. That the whole process of us practicing the behavior of the Son is that He's the judge. The Son is the judge, and He's evaluating mm -hmm. us. And how we practice this behavior. So I cannot secure, obtain, or guarantee resurrection, eternal life for myself. That's that's our salvation, brother. You know that Jesus said we're, we're safe from the second death. It's not the first. We're all going to go through the first death. It's mm -hmm. the second death that we need to be saved from. That's where we're, our souls are redeemed from Sheol so that we can actually be given a new body, a new heart, and given eternal life. And that's what that's the full definition of that word being saved right it's not mm. just this moment where we believe that he exists as james 2 says right even the demons believe that he exists that doesn't mean anything it's simply the fact that we have to show our faith by our our change of our life and our, our you know walking out the behavior of jesus in our life and and then that's where i would just say well practically where does that lead to because if i believe in jesus christ and i say that to myself that i want to you know, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he's real. I believe he's Messiah. Uh, I believe the New Testament, that he's my high priest and he's ministering in the heavenly tabernacle before God on my behalf. Hallelujah. Amen. That's amazing. That's a, that's something I can never do for myself. And he, he obtained that uh, by obedience that I have not been able to show. So he's greater than me and he's amazing and I love him for it. And he's going to give me eternal life is what he promises me. That's why he's faithful and just. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I believe in faith, that the righteousness that comes through faith is what comes through Christ, but I'm not there yet. I get that at the resurrection. So therefore I cannot, if I have that mental disposition and that belief in my heart, mm -hmm. I'm not going to run out and, and join the occult and start killing people. Right. And I, I get what you're saying. I do. I, I really do. And I think that like, well, I apologize, brother, your words do not give me the, inf the impression that you do. So I'm struggling. So what, what I'm saying is I believe that salvation is solely based on believing the gospel i don't okay. believe there's anything else to it i believe that a person believes the what, death burial and resurrection of jesus christ is that what jesus said was the gospel yeah, that's what he told nicodemus he said he told nicodemus hang on, hold on that's what paul said the gospel was but regardless okay okay that's okay, regardless that's what paul's well, you no, you can't you can't separate it because Paul Paul claims that his that his words were the commandments of God. You're ready. Okay. Are you ready for uh -huh. that? Let's go to Paul. 
Let's, First Corinthians 14.37 is where he says that. Paul has a lot more to say than just what he says in First Corinthians, right? So let's go to let's go to Paul. We, we're defining the gospel right now, though. Me too, right? So if we go to Acts chapter 28, verse 30 and 31, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. Where does he say gospel? Preaching the kingdom of God. Doesn't say gospel. Let's let's define the word gospel. So now let's go to Mark four. Well, and I'm just bear with me, just two seconds. Mark four, forty-three and forty-four. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, sorry, Luke. It's Luke four. Luke four. Yeah, Luke four, forty-three and forty-four. I've got it on screen for. Oh, I thought I had it on screen. I apologize. I put it on screen here for those who are watching. So this is Jesus. He says, but he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept mm-hmm. on preaching in the synagogue of Judea. Mm-hmm. This is the NASB translation. We'll go to the King James. And he's talking said, about said the same thing. Right. They got the kingdom of God. Right. So this is where, where he went. And he and in the book of uh, Matthew, he calls it the kingdom of heaven sometimes. But this is where he's talking about the, the good news. You know, the word gospel just means good news. Right. I understand. Look, I understand what the word means, but when we're talking about salvation right. and eternal life, All right? So, what is okay. the is that we have a Messiah who lived, died, and was resurrected as prophesied, and then as prophesied, there's more to the story, brother, and that's where he fulfills his priesthood position to actually mediate atonement for us in the heavenly tabernacle before the Father. And as prophesied, the rest of the story is that he literally calls our names out before the Father to raise us to eternal life which is what he tells Nicodemus in John 3, 16. Mm-hmm. And John 3, chapter, uh, John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, is where he explains to him the nature of the resurrection. And he, he chastised Nicodemus for not understanding this thing and, and calling himself a teacher of Israel. Mm-hmm. Because he's explaining the resurrection to Nicodemus, and he doesn't understand these things. And that's the eternal life that he expounds upon later and by, by the time he gets well, to 16. So right. I that the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're not in disagreement there. That's that's a fundamental, brother. That's what I learned growing up. That's what we're all taught. That's the basics. I'm talking about the full story, which is more to it. Jesus is not done. He's got stuff to do. He's coming back in the day of the Lord to play Wreck-It Ralph on the creation. And I agree. I, agree. I completely agree, man. But what I'm saying is when we're talking about what must a person do to be saved, to receive eternal life, Right. It is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and that he rose again from the dead. I already agree with you. That's what you call believing that he is who he says he was, that he is the Messiah. That was what was prophesied of him, that he would die on the cross, that he'd be raised from the dead. That's the storyline. Right. And whosoever and whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Because what does believing in him do? What does it mean? Right. If you regret I said earlier about Judaism, they reject the Messiah who is prophesied to be the high priest to make atonement for them. They reject the Messiah. So therefore they're rejecting the father who sent him. They're rejecting the whole narrative of the Bible. They reject that. So therefore they will die in their sins if they reject that, because they do not want the father or his son or what the the son's going to offer them as far as atonement through his priesthood or the eternal life. He'd like to give them at the resurrection or the kingdom that he wants to take them into, which is the gospel, the kingdom of God that Mm -hmm. all preached including yeshua or the eternal life in the millennium and after the millennial reign and everything involved in it like they they're rejecting the whole storyline they're rejecting the messiah who makes it all possible mm-hmm. he's the highlight 
of the whole story. He's the king right. of the kingdom, right? So I therefore, agree. you know, it's again, it, if we get if we trap ourselves in a bumper sticker of just saying, well, you have to believe the gospel, and you say, well, wait a minute, okay, well, what's the good news? Oh, that he, Jesus died for sins. Cool. What does that mean? You try to tell that to the average person that has no clue what that means. What does he mean, died for our sins? Did he, did the fact that he died on the cross instantly atone me? That's not how God's law works. That's not how the story was prophesied for him to atone for my sin. So therefore, I, I'm cutting people off in, in their thought process, and I'm leaving them short before I actually get to explain to them the actual process that allows him, that enables him to actually save me and redeem me from my from right. and give me eternal life. And that mm-hmm. is all glory to him that he he's able to do that. No one else is able to do that. Mm-hmm. But to just say that he lived, died, and was resurrected, then suddenly I'm stuck in a place of, of semantics that are not helping people understand the process of his priesthood, which leaves people thinking that atonement is gained by him dying on a cross only. That's part of the process that led him to his priesthood. He had to go through that to get to the resurrection so he could fulfill his priesthood that was appointed to him. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the story, but it's not the end of the story. That's all right. But right. And w- I guess what I'm saying is, even though we should learn and grow, because if we don't learn and grow right spiritually, then the, the Bible, uh, Peter even warns about it, saying that we'll forget that we were ever purged of our old sins. Right. And and so there's a consequence to not growing. But what I'm saying is you you don't have to know every detail of the of, of the Messiah and you don't need to know everything about Jesus in order to be saved you you need yeah, to know that he I didn't say you did i'm just saying right that. right when i'm that right i'm just clarifying that you know even though even though knowing those things are beneficial they help us grow and you know it helps us uh actually love him more because the more we learn about him the more he captivates our hearts and our minds right and so i i completely agree with you um but as far as a person who uh you know, if they all if all they ever heard was the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's all they heard about Jesus and they believe and they believe that that's enough to that's enough to save. them. You know, now I'm guessing there's more to what you're saying, right? Like you don't expect a, a person to hear that Jesus lived, died, was resurrected for them. And they say, oh, that sounds like a nice story. I believe that. And then they walk away and they get no further instruction after that. So you, yes, Jesus could save them just based on that little information. That's fine. That's his choice. He's the judge, right? He knows their heart. And in fact, as I, I think we may have talked about this in the past, in Matthew 25, it even shows us how Jesus judges people who had never heard of him, and he saves them. Mm-hmm. Because they were doing the behavior of God. They were doing the behavior of the commandments. They just didn't know it. They had a heart to do the behavior of Jesus, but no one ever told them that's what they were doing. And this is what we see the sheep that are saved in Matthew 25. I think it's 31 through 42 or something like that. So the point is, I agree with you, brother. The judge, he can he can take, you know, the the most surface level belief and he can choose to save that person and give them eternal life if he wants, because he can, he's the dirt person that decides it, not us. All I'm trying to say is our goal here at Kingdom of Context is to make sure people have a comprehensive understanding of what the scriptures teach. Because therefore, if it only if the only message we need to know is that he lived, died, and was resurrected, then get rid of everything after Acts. 
Okay? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. more to the story, right? And this oh, yeah, is a lot more. Their faith and helps us answer objections to atheists and agnostics and to those who are in different faiths. It helps us weed through misconceptions so we understand that Judaism is a separate religion. They truly weren't following the behavior of God, i.e. the law of God, i.e. the law of Moses. They acted like they were, but they were hypocrites, as Jesus told them. They weren't really doing it. And Jesus did the, the law of God, i.e. the law of Moses, and we're inclined to do that according to his own words. That's that's our, our loving message that we have for anyone. Is that going to be the thing that saves you? Jesus technically is the one who decides to save you, raise you to eternal life. And your level of knowledge will not, you know, there's no qualifier that says you have to have a certain level of knowledge to get to that point of salvation. Right. It's truly, he's the one that decides it anyway, so none of us mm -hmm. can truly tell you know, what level you have to be at for him to, to save you anyway. I think we're kind of dealing into the very, very minutiae here, but ultimately it's about the heart, right? Are you trying to be like him or not? And if you're going to be like him and you truly try to do everything you see him doing in the gospels, you'll be doing the law of God. Right. And, and I, I, I feel right. like he'll you favorably at the judgment. Oh well, yeah. I think, yeah. And you know, I come from a independent fundamental independent Baptist, uh, upbringing so um i think we do i think we really do see things a little bit differently but um anyway i digress um now in um in the under the new covenant and under the new testament are are there any new laws or commandments given to us in the new testament in the new testament i mean as far as uh laws like we're not talking about like no are, are there any new commandments are there any new commandments in the new testament no. So like uh, like how to conduct church discipline and the, the operation of uh, tongues so and Corinthians and stuff. That's, that's what I was trying to define commandments. Right. That, so like because the reason why circumstantial instruction for assembly, worship, corporate, individual, like are you, you know, suddenly they can't hang out the synagogues anymore because they're being persecuted. So therefore they're having house churches. So even within that community, within house churches, you need to appoint leaders and elders. Paul then goes in to say, first Timothy two, Titus chapter one, who are the qualifiers for those positions of leadership. And they have to be men of the faith, men that know the word of God, which means the old Testament, because they didn't mm -hmm. have the Testament when he's saying this. So therefore, you know, that's, those aren't technically commands from the creator. Those are practical instructions on how to walk out your faith in this, in that first century community, as Paul was doing the best they could. So it, under the definition of old Testament of what a command is, as far as like the creator from heaven, speaking through one of his prophets and Moses was a prophet to say, this is how you behave. There are no new commandments in the new Testament. Right. Okay. So like, um, when, when you're looking at church discipline, church conduct and how to conduct yourselves, um, based on what you just said, where in first Corinthians, I'll let you turn there. First Corinthians 14, um, verse 37. And this is a, a scripture. This is the reason why I was able to quote it earlier because I already had it in front of me, but it says, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. And, uh, this is right after he's talking about how to have orderly worship within the church. Okay. Um, so, like, when would you consider these to be in a, a different type of commandment, or like not the same thing on the same level, same tier? Or? Brother, do you realize like how abundantly Paul is preaching the Torah in all of his letters? 
Right, but if you look at the immediate context, what is he talking about? He's talking about the things that he wrote unto them in Corinthians. Right, in well, Corinthians, he's teaching the Corinth, his Corinth church, the law of God. He's teaching the Old Testament. That's he didn't have the New Testament. Right, but why would he go from talking about orderly worship to just, hey, just remember that I'm telling you the, the I'm teaching you the Torah. Well, why would he do that? Seven. Uh, let me share it for my people watching this. But he actually says in verse seven, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, and he already, I mean, that's to be a prophet. That's a big word that has all kinds of connotation and context from the Old Testament. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments. Mm-hmm. Because he's constantly explaining to them the law of God throughout all of his letters to them. And the gospel of the kingdom of God, by the way, as we see in Second Corinthians uh 10 5 and also in first Corinthians 15 and a whole bunch of other places. So like he's he is 100 percent speaking the same message of all the prophets of the old testament, both about prophecy about the day of the Lord and the resurrection, also about practical instruction for living, i.e. the Torah. So this is uh yeah, this is 100 percent him giving generalized instructions on a variety of things. Therefore, I mean, even goes on to say in verse 39, therefore, my brethren. Desire earnestly to prophesy, do not forbid speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly in an orderly manner. So we see this in Numbers chapter 11. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, we have men prophesying and okay. when the spirit dropped and, and they do it in an orderly fashion as Moses had directed them. Um, and therefore, I mean, this is, yeah, he's he's constantly teaching the Torah to his congregants because they did not have the New Testament. He's teaching them the Old Testament law and the prophets. And it, it it's our job. It's incumbent upon us to know the Old Testament so that when we read Paul's letters, as if we were one of the congregants in his churches, we understand where he's coming from. The, the congregants in the church of Corinth listening to Paul, they're not reading the book of Galatians. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and the Thessalonians over in Italy, they're not reading the book of Galatians, or I think they're in Greece, actually. So I'm saying like they, these letters were each church by itself, but what did, what had they already read was the, the law and the prophets. Cause that's what the disciples went out and taught people. Mm-hmm. So um, in, in your opinion, or is there, is there any difference or maybe not in your opinion, but maybe expound on, on this a little bit, but is there any difference between the law of Christ and the law of God? Or are they the same thing? No, uh, the law of like, like Jesus says, um, his his doctrine is not his own. He does and says everything the Father told him. This is in John chapter seven. So it's it's uh, the law of Christ is you know the the instruction of Christ mm-hmm. is is the instruction of God. It's the it's the same thing. There's not a there's not a difference there. He's and even in John chapter I'll go there real quick for those watching along in John chapter fifteen. Uh, Jeter, Peter, excuse me, uh, Jesus repeats to us. Uh, the same concept, and he says, I'll start in verse, let's start in verse 8, if I can. Um, he says, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So that's an action, brother. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. To bear fruit is an action, and therefore prove to be his disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things are spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So the, again, like I said, you go to John seven and you see that he's repeating to us. Um, let me see. I think it's in verse 42. Maybe verse 12. Um, I apologize. One second. No, you're good. 
One second, I'll find this real quick. Yeah, I was verses off. It's in verse 16. And Jesus answered them, says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So this is, you know, uh, let me go to the other verse real quick. And it is... John 5.19, I believe. Maybe it's John 5.20. Yeah, here it is. Uh, verse 19, therefore Jesus answered and said unto them, um, hang on one second, let me pull this down so I can see it again. Jesus answered and said unto them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son does in like manner. So this is the idea. He's he's telling us that he his doctrine, his teaching is not his. He gets it from the Father. Um, everything he's everything he does is because he's seen the Father do it, and that's that's you know he's telling us in multiple places to keep his Father's behavior, which are called the commandments. So therefore, there there, there cannot be a difference. Otherwise, Jesus disqualifies himself as a false prophet. Man, I appreciate that answer. Um, <clears throat> now. In your opinion, what are the dangers in teaching that the law and the Torah is not to be observed? Um, what are the dangers in teaching that to the church? Uh, that people will not have a good working definition of how to be a disciple of Christ and what it means to love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Does that make sense? So we actually mm -hmm. get those definitions given to us in First John. And I'll go to one of them real quick because this is paramount to understanding how we walk like him, right? So I'll go to First John real quick, and it says in, in chapter 2, By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we're in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So it would be a hindrance to a person's ability to experience the love of God to the point where you're emulating that and, and loving him back and, and treating others with that same type of love. And that's where I personally believe, brother, that this is why we've had so much mixing of doctrine and confusion in the last several hundred years, not just in our culture, but around the world. This is why those prophecies are there that I mentioned before, that it says that in the last days, people will come and recall to mind the commandments and they'll, they'll come back to keeping the law of God because it's, we want to love God. Right. And there's a, there's a reason that I personally believe it's like what Paul talks about in Romans, you know, where, where sin abounds, grace increases all the more. So we're in an age of lawlessness that is increasing and will continue to increase until the return of Messiah. So therefore the grace of God, which is given through the priesthood of God as Acts chapter two, 32 and 34 says that he can give the spirit as he chooses because he's in the position to do so now. And then he can pour the spirit out but upon us for ministry and for understanding. That also leads us, as we read from Romans chapter 8, 5 through 8, to subjecting ourselves to the actual law of God, which is the behavior of Jesus, to get better at it so that we become stronger, more ingrained and rooted and grounded in love and become more effectual in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that's the way we view it and try to help people understand it. Now, I appreciate that answer. Um, now, is, 
is there any chance at all that you could uh, possibly be wrong uh, in, as far as your view of the law being for today? Um, sure. If if uh, the definitions of the words changed. <laughs> yeah, brother. I mean, ultimately, like I said, even before I came to this, this, uh, you know, a little more technical or, or, you know, full, well-rounded understanding of, you know, what these words mean, these concepts front back to the Old Testament, uh, understanding the priesthood process that our, our Messiah embodies and how he saves us literally and technically, even before I understood all that stuff. And I was just a believer, you know, sitting in the, sitting in the pew with my Bible marked up with pen and highlighter, just thinking that, you know, I, I love Jesus because he died for my sins. And that's the only thing I understood. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, that I, that's, there's a lot of people there and that's fine. That's hundred percent fine. But for those who want to jump in and dig past the fundamentals or past the elementary things as Hebrews six, one through three talks about, um, that's, that's where we start to grow, you know, to become disciples. And that's why there's different gifts given out, you know, according to the spirit of God. And some of them are to be teachers and pastors and evangelists. And those people are held to a higher standard. And so that's why I take that seriously. And I want to make sure that I'm doing the best of my ability to keep to, you know, accurately handle the word of truth, right? As first Timothy 2.15 talks about, I want to make sure that I fall into that to be, you know, um, someone that's approved and studied in the word and to show people that it's encouraging. It gives life and it brings fullness to your walk and your discipleship. So all these, that, you know, that motivation has formed because I started looking up the meanings of these terms and these words. So if I'm wrong, it's because all the meanings of the terms and the words I looked up completely fooled me. If I'm not wrong, I just enjoy my savior all the more and Lord willing, I'm leading more people to a stronger foundation in their faith, a better understanding in their knowledge of God, and hopefully be more grounded and rooted in their faith in case they face persecution in this lifetime. Because we don't, you know, we don't want any brother or sister to fall away, right? Mm -hmm. Man, I really appreciate that, man. And uh, is there anything else uh, before before we close out that you would like to add and share with it with the audience? Uh, I guess not. Just ultimately, you know, uh, go read the Old Testament. You know, what I'm saying, and you'll start to understand everything Jesus said and did, and everything Paul is saying. Uh, just go read the Old Testament and kind of get familiar with it. Because it's we're not told to do that in most churches. We were we start reading at the back of the book, and that's not normal, right? We know we would never pick up a book from the store and start reading the back of it first. So go read the front of the book and get familiar with it, and then I promise your walk with Christ will greatly, greatly be enhanced. Man, I really appreciate you coming on the show again, man. It, it was a it was a spirited discussion, and I really, really appreciate your time, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. What you think, man? <laughs> yeah, that's great, brother. Um, so I'm going to do a, a little bit of a, I guess, an outro, if you will. And so that everyone knows my technically my podcast starts pretty soon. So I'm going to have to uh, see if what I can do to try to upload this if possible. And because we've been, man, this flew by. We've got we've been going like two hours and 35 minutes. Yeah, it went pretty long. Um, but it was a great discussion, man. Some great questions. And I hope that people are best by, you know, the, the back and forth. <laughs> and I hope they're blessed by, you know, digging well, in. You know? The back and forth will be on your on your uh, show, and uh, because I, like I said, I don't I don't like to give give out you know my position uh, necessarily when when I'm yeah, doing the podcast. To, 
objective, I get it. Yeah. Oh, I, I want to appear objective because if people listen to my podcast because they know me personally yeah. or or they respect me or anything else, I don't want my opinion or the way I feel to skew them. The the whole purpose of the podcast is to be a Berean, right? Yeah. So I want I want to I want to present a unfiltered, unadulterated, unchallenged right view from the scripture, no matter what the view is. And then challenge people to go and study it out for themselves and then bring in somebody else to that holds a different view so they can. I just don't I don't like swaying people um, on the on the podcast because that wasn't the uh, the vision that I had for it. You know, sure, man. I'm sure there's a, be a lot of listeners out there uh, hearing some of the things I said that will definitely challenge them in their personal part at home. <laughs> They're going to be pulling their hair out, man. They're going to be like, <laughs> how dare he say we do it? <laughs> I know, man. I, uh, hey, man. Now, yeah. It's it's a uh, if you like. I don't know if we have the time or not in the future, but if you have the opportunity, um, let Mister Hoven know that I would gladly debate him, and that I do have a working model. And I mean, it's not going to be like a table model, but I mean, I can I can make pictures to show him how it works. Nice. And, and that, uh, yeah, I think that that would be a fun conversation if he's uh, brave enough to have it. I think uh, you know. He's brave enough. I mean, I think he is, but I don't know, um, man. He's shot away from a lot of biblical critters. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And then, then um, I might get you on if I can't get you on with Kent Hoven for like a debate. Maybe I can get you on with the uh, the guy I was telling you about, uh, uh, Jordan Ortiz. Uh, he's going to he's the ex Hebrew Israelite. Um, who wrote the book, wrote, wrote the book Judaizers. He actually wrote the book. That's the name of his book. It's called Judaizers. And uh, he's going to be the contrasting episode that uh, will be airing alongside of yours. Cool. Um, so maybe we can have y'all both on. I can moderate. That would be fun. Yeah, I'm glad I used that term then. Yeah, that would be awesome. Because I hopefully brought some context to that term. Yeah, see, that's We'll see if he uses it in that in the definition of the scriptures or if he's taken it out of context. So. Hey, man, I appreciate it again, brother. Yeah, it's awesome, brother. All right, I'll talk to you later. I'm going to, we'll we'll sign off and I'm going to go to the podcast. All right, brother. God bless you. Have a good night.